Hello and welcome to Kickout 299. I am Rachel. My pronouns are they, them, and I am very excited to discuss a year in Noah because boy, what a year it has been. And I'm Alicia. My pronouns are she, her. It's truly wild to be recording a part two of I am Noah because the first one was really kind of brought us to even wanting to create a podcast. And it's really weird to be (laughs) fast approaching our first year into doing this. And I remember us when we were recording, I am Noah, putting it together, thinking about it. We were just sort of laughing and being like, well, in like 50 episodes, we'll revisit. I am Noah, having no concept of what 50 episodes would mean. And 50 episodes felt like this incredible amount of time we could never possibly even get to 50 episodes how could we ever get to 50 episodes um but we're a year into this and it felt necessary to return to something that was so fundamentally um important in bringing us together as friends let alone you know giving us the idea to really want to start a podcast together and I will say too that and you and I have talked about this several times when we recorded I am Noah part one. I hated that recording session. Yeah, hated it. I thought that I was really bad at this and that I would never get better at it and that we were going to launch it and people weren't going to like it. And it would just be like this brief kind of funny thing that we did. And it just didn't work. And oh, well, <laughs> And then um, <laughs> we quickly realized that, you know, people did like it and there was perhaps some worth in us pursuing this and doing this together beyond the obvious. So it's really, really weird. That's what I have. Uh, that's my, the sentiment I keep landing on is that it's just really weird to be here a year later revisiting this topic with you, but um, it's really special and very important to me. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited. We are halfway to 50 episodes. This is actually episode 26. So uh, if you count everything we've done though, like the the interviews with people like Takagi and then all of Talking True. Triple Crown were like just under 50 for like the wow. year. You're I think right. we're going to get to 50 by the time we end, perhaps it'll end up being like 49. That's what will wow. end up happening. Well, then we need to throw in like a random episode so that we can have 50. I don't know about like, that. Like I don't want to edit that. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be unedited. It will be totally off the cuff. I don't know what it will be, but it will be totally off the cuff. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, no, it's it's really exciting. And one thing that's interesting is when we did I Am Noah Part 1, we were covering a huge amount of history and going through a lot of different stories. And we're going to be doing that this time too. But in Part 1, we were covering a long period of time, especially with Real Noah, um, which we will be touching on at the end of this episode. And there's a lot of history interwoven in here, but we're really focusing on sort of going through an update, I guess, and going through all the Noah we've watched this year and um, just focusing on 2022. And that's going to be really interesting to sort of see where we were in I Am Noah 1 and versus where we are now in um, I Am Noah 2 and where this year has taken us. And then we'll hopefully get to talk about where the year is going to go because it's going to be very, very interesting. And there's a lot of really, really fascinating and compelling things to talk about. So without further ado, let's get into it.
So for this episode, we wanted to go through, I guess um, they've been referring to them as the main four uh, wrestlers that have been big parts of Noah, and that's going to be Go Shiyazaki, Katsuko Nakajima, Keno, and Kaito Kiyomiya. And to me, they sort of represent what is going on with the I Am Noah sort of storyline throughout this year. And as I said earlier, we will be touching on Real Noah because they are very important uh, down at the end of the episode. So you definitely want to stay tuned for that. But we're going to start off with Mr. Shiyazaki. <laughs> Go Shiyazaki, Mr. I Am Noah himself. And sort of touch on a little bit of what we've talked about in our first episode in I Am Noah Part 1, but sort of refresh you and figure out where we've uh, where we're going from here. So on November 28th, 2021. We're going to start with Go Shiyazaki returning from shoulder injury and surgery. And he showed up at the end of Nakashima and Keno's fantastic 60-minute draw. And uh, he challenged for the title. And when we first recorded I Am Noah, the first episode, we didn't really know what was going to happen during that title challenge. We didn't really know exactly where Shiyazaki's story was heading and now we have a little more insight on that but we really want to take you back to that moment and talk about his return and sort of where we were at that time and uh, how that sort of informed what ends up happening with Shiyazaki so actually Alicia you start us off because uh, when you first watched Shiyazaki's return you had some very strong words for me and um, because I was very bitter about him interrupting Keno but uh, you you had some very uh, poignant words immediately upon seeing him. So why don't you take us back? I think I remember messaging you something like, that's not Shio. That's is... exactly what you said. <laughs> yep. you, it was like a horror movie. You were like, that's not Shiozaki. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that was a fascinating moment because I think up until that time, I hadn't quite thought about what that moment would feel like when he came back. I didn't really know, um, you know, who he would be and if he would be any different than who he was when he left during, uh, or rather right after his fourth GHC heavyweight reign. But the man that came out to interrupt Nakajima and Keno that night on November 28th was not the Shiyazaki that we had seen leave um, after his fourth reign ended when he dropped the GHC heavyweight title to Muto at the Budokan. This was a different person. You could really just see it in the way he held his face and the way that he kept pursing his lips. He There's something about his eyes that just was really, and is still to this day, very striking to me. This was a much angrier Shiyazaki he the way that he speaks to Nakajima and the way that he mm. addresses the crowd this is a man who is suddenly devoid of the warmth that we had really come to um associate with him and I mean Shiozaki is naturally a very warm lovely man um but when <laughs> uh you know you had Shio in the throes of the fourth reign you are getting the ace Shiozaki go so there's a certain warmth and to his tone that you would get when he would address the crowd especially after his defenses but when he comes out to the ring to address Katsukiko and the crowd you are not getting that warmth you're getting a much darker much angrier Shiyazaki and it really struck me and that's why I sent you that message immediately of oh that's not Shio because it really you know there I was struck by that feeling of this is not the man that left us to go get surgery at the end of his reign this is someone different and this is going to change the story and the trajectory of I am Noah from here 
Yeah, and you can see that throughout the build to that match. That build was extremely intense. And one image I always remember was um, Kaito taking a pin after a match. And he was sort of trying to get back up on his feet. And um, then Shiyazaki comes up instead of sort of like patting him on his back or checking on him. He starts kneeing him in the back to sort of set him right. And there's just such a lack of, there's such a strange distance between you know, Shizaki and Kaito. And, you know, those two are practically brothers. It's almost bizarre to see this coldness and sort of this awkward, very awkward distance. And and that sort of just kind of continued going into this Budokan match. And I want to say too, and I, you know, I don't know how much of this is purposeful and how much of this is just sort of accidental. And you can sort of read into it more because of the way mm-hmm. that he is portraying this part of his character moving into the storyline and coming back but I found the use of low angle camera shots with Shiyazaki Mm. at ringside and when they're filming him to be really striking during this period there is a match and I don't have the date on hand for it but I think it might even be the last uh pre-tag that they have going into Budokan um that's kind of a mess I remember him being very um, sort of uh, upset after the match and there's a lot of scrambling and he's not letting people help him. And I remember him kind of bursting through the gate on his way back into entrance kind of area and they've got this low angle camera shot on him. The camera's very low and it's sort of, you're getting the shot that's looking up at him. And those shots when you're looking at film are, you can often get a sense of, you know, um, heroicism from somebody Mm -hmm. or someone who is very strong. And while I think that you can look at Shiyazaki as still being someone who is very strong uh, during this program, you can also through the use of those low angle camera shots, get someone who is very dangerous. And I think that is what you can get when you are watching him in this program leading into the Budokan and his interactions with Nakajima. Um, You get a sense of someone who is a little dangerous, a little desperate in their pursuit of the belt that they lost. Um, And I think that those camera angles just really kind of highlight that because you can see like his facial features and the way he holds his face and the way that um, he does this thing with his eyes. It's like, it's just so striking to me. But those low angle camera shots that you get in that build, and I'll talk about this again, even through um, his four trials, um, you see that there as well. Um, it's just so incredibly striking to me and something that stood out to me once again when we were kind of rewatching some of these matches. Yeah, you can you can see that in the Budokan match too. I remember there was there was a lot of that. And so of course he did challenge. He was unsuccessful. And one thing I really wanted to talk about was uh, his new costume that he debuted during the show. Uh, actually in the March 8th, 2022 issue of Shukan Pro Wrestling, uh, Shiyazaki did a little costume research column. They do them in every single issue. They're really fun to see. You get a lot of really fun facts from them. And he noted that he wanted to redefine the cape in wrestling to be less associated with superheroes and more to give an image of nobility, like Harley Race. That was the example that he gave. Mm. However, he goes on to clarify that he is, and this is a quote, he is a prince rather than a king. And so I thought that was very, very, very interesting and very telling of Shiyazaki's um, personality in general and also his uh, wrestling character. I think more than anything, you sort of feel this distance that he feels between himself and between this sort of image of kingliness. I remember during the build to this Budokan match, he kept saying things like, I have to win to prove that I am who I say I am. Uh, And that that was a huge deal. And so you sort of get that distance and almost 
almost an insecurity, which is very interesting. And uh, he started to take on in this um, costume, and people noted this all over Twitter, that he was incorporating more and more emerald tones into the costume, much like Misawa. And Shiyazaki is very careful with his words here, stating that emerald is a color that, and I quote, inspires him. He is aware of Misawa and wishes to draw on his enthusiasm to improve and elevate himself. So I thought that was just a very interesting note about this costume, about this cloak that I thought people might want to know. And uh, it definitely showed as he was walking in with uh, this grand image of sort of princeliness or or kingliness that he walks in. And, and it's a statement piece there. I was absolutely blown away when I watched him walking out like this, uh, that he definitely had this air that he could not lose, that he did not he could not afford to lose even because like I said before, he had to win in order to say he was who he said he was. And he wanted to be worthy of wearing that cloak straight up. He wanted to be worthy of wearing those colors. So you just have this really interesting combination between that coldness and, you know, that anger versus, you know, this beautiful, kingly princely image and they all sort of marry together into this really incredible entrance that is just mind-blowing and somehow he even ups the ante later on we'll talk about that <laughs> and you certainly touch on it but it's just so fascinating that after such a confirming fourth reign that really sees him step into the ace role that had been denied him for a variety of reasons we find him at even more of an identity crisis almost. And that's not a place that I think we had anticipated he would find himself. And yet more than ever, he feels that he needs to prove himself going into this to the point where he's, um, and his, he's very, very careful, like you said about um, his words around Misawa. And you can understand perhaps why he would be very careful in invoking Misawa here. But he is intentionally, I think, leaning on Misawa in the imagery of him being in the ring in this beautiful cloak and the emerald tones, but still, you know, is, uh, is at that crossroads of identity and who is he without the GHC heavy? And what does that mean for him? If he can't reclaim this, this piece of, of Noah, what does that mean for him? And it's just such a, a fascinating thing that I don't think any of us really anticipated that he would find himself at, but it became an incredibly uh, compelling storyline. And it's, sort of at that point that Nakajima has realized this and has made this the stipulation to the match, hasn't he? Where he says, you know, if I win, you cannot say I am Noah anymore. And that's not just taking away someone's catchphrase. At that point for Shiyazaki, it's taking away his everything. It's taking away everything he is. And he, you know, he can't say who he says he is anymore. And that's, that just loses his identity. There's, there's a lot going on <laughs> with the terms of identity and um, how connected that is to I am Noah with Shiyazaki. And so when he loses this match, he loses that ability to say it. And even after, for months after, like two or three months, he, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk about that. Um, but he, uh, he, he says over and over, he wants to be able to say it again. And um, including in that March 8th shoe pro um, column that I mentioned, he says, and I quote, I want to scream those words again, which I thought was actually a fairly uh, raw line coming from Shiozaki. Mm -hmm. 
So almost immediately after this January 1st defeat on January 4th, 2022, Shizaki suffered a second singles defeat since his return to none other than Kaito Kiyomiya. Um, in order to set himself right, Shizaki proposed a Road to GHC series of four matches against top talent in NOAA in order to get back on the right track. And I do want to uh, stress that he did propose this himself. This was his idea. Like this was a big kayfabe thing that he set the uh, challenges for himself and he decided, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get back on the road to GHC. I'm going to win this and I'm going to get my title back. That was the whole storyline. So it's just important that this wasn't a company thing. Like this was kayfabe Shiyazaki deciding this for himself. <laughs> and you wouldn't get the feeling of that based off of his behavior in the first match, but it yeah, genuinely that's... was his idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So with that perfect segue, let's go straight into the first match. And that is going to be on January 27th against Sugiura, in which he lost by referee's decision. So all of these matches can be summarized with a single quote that each opponent gave after this match. And after this match, Sugiura plainly stated, that wasn't the perfect Chiyazaki. And that that was it for me. So I want to hear your takes on this match, and then we can come back to that quote and, and bring it up a little bit. But uh, let's talk about the entrance, because you had a lot of thoughts on that one, didn't you? I did, because, you know... I, I loved this match when I originally saw it, and it's it's really hard for me to not love a Shiyazaki Sugira match as it is. But when this this made me laugh in rewatching it um, recently because Shiyazaki walks out for this match like he's being asked to do so by knife point, and yet the the concept of the trial series was his idea. But he looks pained. He looks a little disheveled. His lips are super thin. He like he just doesn't look well and he looks unprepared to go out there and face arguably his most important rival within Noah in Takashi Sugira. So I was so struck by that and watching it just a couple of days ago that he that he because I don't know if I necessarily caught that. I've watched a lot of these um uh matches like but in the early morning before I was leaving for mm. work so I think this might have been one of them so I didn't necessarily catch that um the last time I really watched this stuff because I think I rewatched them I, maybe right after they happened but I just was so struck by how disheveled he looked how unprepared he looked and how much he didn't look like he wanted to be in the ring fighting Sugira even though this is his idea even though he's trying to use these matches to get back in contention for the GHD heavyweight championship that he just lost to Katsuhiko Nakajima so I was really floored by that behavior within the match itself and I said this to you right away Rachel that there is just so this match is just like you said rife with callbacks to the 2009 GHD heavyweight match that they had where Sugira took the GHD heavyweight title from him during one of the worst years in Noah's history. And that callback to that stuff from the past really says something about the theme of the rest of these matches too moving forward. So that is really interesting to note. I was really surprised again, seeing the finish of this one because Sugira wins with like a front headlock. And yeah. that's not something that Sugira necessarily like, like he can win with it, but against Shiyazaki, that's what really surprised me is that Shiyazaki let himself get trapped with a front headlock in 2022. 
So that's why the referee's decision component of this match surprised me. But to me, that illustrates just how unprepared Chiyazaki was to really be back in the ring with Sugira when he's not really sure even who he is right now. And that's what is the story to me coming out of this match. And when I hear Sugira say that wasn't the perfect Chiyazaki, that's what the finish to me illustrates. That wasn't the perfect Chiyazaki for him to get caught with a front headlock by Sugira in 2022. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I actually forgot how that match ended. I totally did not remember that it ended by referee's decision. And um, we have very similar takes on the match. And I think um, one of the beautiful things about these matches is that there are, it tells the same story, I think, for everyone watching it, but everyone has their own sort of takeaway based on their own experience in Noah. I think that's really cool. Because when I looked at this, I sort of, I got that, that whole, this isn't the perfect Shiyazaki. And I started thinking about how in 2009, he was so incomplete um, and he was so, you know, broken. You go back to that match and you sort of echo the pain and you echo that incompleteness. And that that's sort of what I got out of that. And it was, it's very interesting that you sort of, um, you have a much more like holistic view of all four of these matches. <laughs> so that, that was really cool to get your opinions on that. We'll talk more about that, but as an individual view, it was very interesting. And um, I also thought that the ending spoke to how woefully unprepared he was to be in the ring again. And it also spoke to his stubbornness. He didn't tap. And that's one thing that I think also really echoes throughout all of these matches is that he thinks he can get back to the GHC on pure pride alone. Mm-hmm. And and that is something that you see a lot and you see a lot in this match as well, is that you see this this pride and this inability to sort of bend to anybody. You and I talk about that a lot with Shiyazaki, and I think it's actually one of like our earliest conversations about him yep. is his <laughs> stubbornness, that trait of stubbornness. Shiyazaki is someone who, and it's so funny like to think about it, but that program that he had with Katsuhiko between Katsuhiko winning the N1 the first time and that GHC challenge during Shio's fourth reign in every single match. And it felt like there were about 400 for some reason, that was the longest program ever just to get to that title <laughs> challenge. Really but was. that program is so funny because Shiyazaki can't help himself, but to stand in the pocket in each and single, every exchange he has with Katsuhiko every single time, because he knows that, that that Nakajima is going to kick him. He knows that Nakajima will kick him in that lead leg over and over and over and over again. But Shiyazaki never changes and he never learns and he never bothers to change up his style. He will stand in the pocket with Nakajima over and over and over again because he thinks he'll just be able to power through, like you said, on pride. And that's just a very funny and fascinating component of his character that shows up again and again and again. And it shows up over and over again in this four-match trial series as well. And actually, can you go ahead and explain what standing in the pocket is? Because I actually did not know this until you had explained it to me, and now I see it all the time, and it's a huge personality trait of Shiyazaki's to me. So when he squares up with Nakajima, someone like Nakajima is like a striker. He Mm -hmm. will literally stand within striking distance. So someone like Katsuhiko, who has, you know, an incredible range and incredible kicks, will just nail him with kicks to that lead leg, the leg that is in the the front for Shiyazaki, over and over and over again. And if it's like a shoot fight, you don't want to do that because they're going to take out your lead leg. If your lead leg goes numb or if, uh, you know, something like your your lead leg, you could end up with a break, end up with all kinds of different things. If that lead leg is is done, you're going to lose the fight. 
So that's what Shiyazaki does though. Like he does that all of the time with Nakajima. It doesn't matter. Like um, it doesn't matter. Like he just, he never learns. He always stands in the pocket and he lets Nakajima kick him in that lead leg over and over and over again, because he thinks that he can just power through it sheer on sheer pride alone. Um, because he is just this, uh, he's an incredible professional wrestler with an incredible mind for wrestling. And I think that oh, Shiyazaki yeah. is also someone who, um, is very much a product of the Noah Dojo and how he's been trained. So he has an incredible range of skills to be sure. However, that's why I know that he is doing <laughs> this on purpose because mm-hmm. oh, he's, for sure. because he's too smart to keep standing in the pocket with a striker like Nakajima to not know that that's going to wear down your lead leg and give you problems later on during the match. Um, it's just this really fascinating thing that demonstrates to you how stubborn he is and how much he believes that if he just keeps pushing through a problem, he can make that problem disappear. So yeah, that that is extremely indicative of his personality and his stubbornness. And we will begin to see that through the remaining three matches. Match two was against Masato Tanaka, and that was on February 9th, which ended in about 20 minutes, almost exactly, when Tanaka defeated him with the sliding D. And this is all very significant because 10 years prior to this match, Tanaka defeated Shiyazaki in almost exactly 20 minutes. And uh, same result, same everything. And his quote backstage after the match was very simply, the result hasn't changed since 10 years ago. So this is this is true. Almost nothing had changed in either of these men. It was actually really incredible that neither of them showed any quit during this match. I actually really like this match. All, th- all four of them are fantastic matches. And this one is my least favorite, but that doesn't say anything of the match because it is actually a really incredible match. And I know you really liked it watching back. Um, Alicia but there it was just really incredible the stamina both of them had you really couldn't tell the wear and tear that the 10 years had put on them and it's just incredible um in a lot of ways how this pacing of this match really escalated I said it to you that this is a match that almost suffers from the quote-unquote clap crowd I don't really believe in uh insulting crowd noise no matter what it is but I do think that if there was cheering there would be a real fever pitch going on um in the crowd because you could just feel them really getting into it all the blocking and the dodging and in the end Hanukkah's stamina just simply outlasted Shiyazaki here and the result remained the same of 10 years ago and Shiyazaki was just unable to change unable to change the result yeah, this is a really, really good match. It was so much better in watching it again, um, as I think most things sometimes wind up being. But I did really like this match. And this is another one, too, where Shiyazaki gets out of the ring. He's upset at the outcome, obviously. He mm-hmm. shirks off all help um, because this is a very um, this is a very solo journey for Shiyazaki. He is very much alone, which contrasts with our champion, who we'll talk about later, who is not oh, alone. Yeah which is great, but you have that, you do have that, um, not that I think that they need to be necessarily constantly compared or paralleled, but it is fascinating to see that Shiyazaki is now almost completely alone. He's like completely shirking off help. He doesn't want the, um, I was going to say the young lions. He doesn't want the, um, the younger, you know, Noah uh, wrestlers to help him backstage. He's like throwing them off of him and you get him coming through the gate with this low angle camera shot. And you get that sense again of someone who is just wounded who was a little dangerous who 
is just not the Shiazaki we came to know and be used to in his fourth reign, which I think is just, um, again, I, I can't tell you that it's like meant to be happening, but the camera work really works in this way to demonstrate what Shiazaki I think is showing us. Yeah, I absolutely agree. The storytelling is just really, really second to none here. And uh, match three, I think this one is probably your favorite, Alicia. I think you said it was, it's a, a razor thin margin, but I think match three would be your favorite. And that was against Naomichi Marafuji on February 10th. Yes, this is super hard because I, I love all four of them. I struggle to rank them because they're all so good and because they all tell such interesting stories about where Shiyazaki is. But I do love the Marafuji match. And I think this was genuinely one of Marafuji's, if not Marafuji's best match of the year. Um, really? Genuinely. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's without question, this is one of, um, if not easily, Marafuji's best match of the year. And it's just difficult because I think even the next match could easily be my favorite as well. But this Marafuji match is something that I've come back to and um, have really enjoyed for what they they demonstrate in the time that they had. Yeah, and this match, I sort of, when I first went through these matches, I sort of made it um, Go Shiyazaki's Christmas Carol, where Sugiura was uh, Jacob Marley and and sent out a warning because his match happened um, right before this three-day stretch of matches uh, that sort of represent this um, past, present, future kind of thing. And you, you sort of caught me on the whole present thing um, where I didn't necessarily mean present as in today, but as in um, taking advantage of the now, living in the moment, um, seizing opportunities when you see them. And you get a lot of that out of Marafuji throughout this match. He's he's very clever with a lot of his um, limb work. He's targeting that shoulder. He's, he's very um, committed to that strategy that he went in divorced of all the other matches focused on this specific strategy and he commits to it all the way to the end. And it's very interesting um, now that we have are on the other side of our Marken episodes and we've talked so much about how clever a lot of his limb work is. So you sort of see that coming back uh, here with this Marafuji match. And um, you mentioned that as well, that you see a lot of um, genius of the arc, sort of old school Marafuji playback er, playbook. And you have a not necessarily different takeaway from that match, but a different view of this match because of that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I think when you explained a little bit more about your your take on it, it made a lot more sense to me. And I think that we're kind of both in the same place on it, more or less. It's just that when I'm talking about Mara Fuji and when I'm talking about Genius of the Arc, I'm really referring to the use of it from when he was first being referred to as Genius of the Arc. And that was when he was much younger. And in the finish of this match, I found it utterly brilliant because, and it's funny because, you know, <laughs> He, he pinned Sugira to set up the match we're going to talk about at the very end of the episode, the same, really more or less the same way. So yeah, he, he is, he's prone to do this and I think it's great, but this match really does take me back into that sort of early 2000s sort of Marafuji, the Marafuji that would have been um, someone that Shiyazaki would have really been butting up against for the very first time. 
I think about their white belt challenge together a lot. That's the Mara Fuji that Shio got in this match in present day. And that's why I find the match so brilliant. I think that Shiozaki has to overcome aspects of the past in the first three matches in a big way. And that plays on that stubbornness factor again. He's so stubborn and he knows those three men so well. And yet he couldn't anticipate the things he knows that they know how to do in order to defeat them. And he should have been able to because he just defeated two of these men, two of these men who have been these huge walls to climb for him in the company and he couldn't do it here. And it's because he's so stubborn and he couldn't change the playbook in order to do it here. And I think that that's really fascinating. And I, and I loved his face at the end because Mara Fuji is who he is at all times. Cause you get that like aspect of Mara Fuji kind of dipping into the mean senior in this match too. Yeah. And the way that he like holds himself. And then at the end of the match, he, you know, tells Shiyazaki that it's a three count. He does three for him. And then Shiyazaki is immediately like furious. <laughs> His face, yeah. like he, he smacks the top of the ring, one of the ring posts before he leaves the ring. Um, and he gets under Shiyazaki's skin in a way that only Marafuji can. It's like that wonderful, just classic Marafuji who just like sort of gets under people's skins, that classic genius of the arc playbook to get this win. And I think that that's sort of beautifully illustrated as well in his um, comments after the match, which I would love for yeah. you to read, actually. So um, it's very funny because those comments sum up both of what we are saying. And it, that would be, I just won today. That's all. Um, he didn't state that he was the better wrestler um, overall, just the better wrestler in that moment. And uh, like I said, to me, that sort of spoke to at the end of the day, all you need is a moment. All you need is three seconds to win that match. He capitalized on Shiyazaki not being able to change the script. And mm -hmm. that's all Marafuji needs to win. And that's why he's still a dangerous player, even in 2022, Noah. Beautifully said. Now let's talk about that last match. Speaking of uh, people who changed the script, that would be against Keno, where he suffered his fourth defeat. And that was going to be on February 11th. So before we talk about this match, I want to talk about a Shupro column that Keno did uh, with Hikaru Inoue before this match for the February 8th issue of the magazine. So uh, this was actually, it was on February 11th as a whole. So there was a little bit about Kensuke office in here too, which takes us to like sort of the end of the column that I'll read out. When asked for his impression of Shiyazaki before the match, he plainly stated, ordinary, no more, no less. He's normal so normal, within the realm of imagination. However, his harsh words did not stop there. He acknowledged that Shizaki's chops were amazing, but that something was missing. Going on to state that in the end, Shizaki is not the same without the GHC. And this is a quote, Shizaki is a wrestler who relies on the belt. Keno wanted to see Shiyazaki make a comeback from the bottom of the card after his losses to Nakajima and Kaito, but he felt let down by his match against Sugiura, feeling as though Shiyazaki did not really bring any desperation or sense of comeback to the match. He's been like that for a long time, Keno states, and the current Noah is like a torrent, always in motion. If you miss the boat by even just a second, you'll find yourself drowning. And Shiyazaki, who cannot show us anything new at this important time, will simply be left at shore. 
So this is just a huge blanket statement to what we were saying and that he cannot change. He is just barreling through with stubbornness. And that, that really just solidified it to me. I, I read this article well after this series, but it still was, it spoke very, very loudly to it. Uh, Keno then at the end connects this match to the date, which would be February 11th, which is famously the day Kensuke Sasaki announced his immediate retirement after losing to Katsuko Nakajima and states, just as eight years ago, when Kensuke Sasaki decided to retire after losing to Katsuko Nakajima, I will defeat Go Shiyazaki and hand him his farewell. That is some of the meanest things anyone's ever said, besides that one Nakajima comment I tell you about all the time. Yeah. Yeah, that is. That's, that is some of the meanest things that anyone could say. And I've said this before, but I would never want to get in a feud with Keno. <laughs> <laughs> He would find your one insecurity and carve you in. <laughs> oh, he is he is very astute and an incredible uh, character read right there. But um, yeah, he he really, really painted this story and he really painted the match that was coming up as well, because this match really comes down to Keno punishing Shiyazaki for his own stubborn pride and for his inability to show him something new. Um, Shiyazaki refused to take a cheap shot to Keno when he had him against the ropes. And as you were saying earlier, against strikers, he stood in the pocket, eating every single one of Keno's kicks with just mm-hmm. sheer determination and pride. And Keno did not show Shiyazaki any respect for it. Not at all. And um, this match was was just kind of brutal in, in a really great way. I, I love this match a lot. And the finish just says it all to me that Keno just lands this disgusting kick <laughs> to <laughs> Shiyazaki's head. And he he knows it could have been a KO. Like he literally just had a TKO against Kaito um, at the Budokan. And he sort of stands back and shakes his head and says, no, I have to bury Shiyazaki's pride. So he climbs the top rope, lands a PFS, and then climbs it again and lands a second PFS and just says it loudly as though he were shouting into the mic. And as typical of Keno with the mic, um, he had a lot to say in the post-match, including proclaiming the match as revenge for Shiyazaki interrupting um, that post-match between him and Nakajima that I mentioned I was so bitter about him doing um, months prior. So that was sort of personal redemption. But uh, the most important quote here that he says is this, crawl your way back up to me. Keno felt frustrated, not by Shiyazaki's losing streak, but by Shiyazaki feeling as though he could get right back on track to the GHC, and he couldn't find a way to shine without the belt. He wanted to see Shiyazaki make a thrilling comeback story and crawl his way back up to the top. But Shiyazaki wasn't doing that. He was making these, you know, grand little, like, stages for himself to just immediately go right back to the belt. And so this is kind of setting a scene and building this road for Shiyazaki to attempt to climb. And I thought that was just really, really cool. Yeah, this match is phenomenal. And it's really hard to almost add anything else because Keno is sort of the best at telling you exactly what they're doing in terms of the story. We're going to talk about that a lot later. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) There's even there's even better stuff that lies ahead but no it's it's this it's phenomenal and it's the story that Keno sort of paints for you in this that makes this one so compelling and the match itself 
is blistering. And I've said this multiple times, you know this, I really do strongly feel that Keno and Shiyazaki, because of the booking largely, are overlooked as the middle gen feud. Um, I really hope in the future, we'll talk about this probably ad nauseum here and other places, but this is the feud to me. This is the feud to make for the future. They have so much between them that just gets very um, unexplored because we never kind of circle back to them in the booking. And yet we do have a draw sitting between them as well. So there is precedent for there to be something here that kind of expands and that we kind of get to see come to fruition. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to that happening in the future. We'll keep our fingers crossed, but it's just impossible not to really enjoy that match, especially when you keep Keno's comments in mind as you're watching. One thing that's interesting that you just said was um, connecting it to the draw. The The plot was very much the same, wasn't it? Where with the draw, it was Shiyazaki is strong and barreling forward and very stubborn and he won't give in within 30 minutes. And Keno's very clever <laughs> and he will keep changing things and he'll keep rewriting the script over and over and um, he won't lose in 30 minutes. Doesn't matter if he, if he you know doesn't win, he's not going to lose um because he'll he'll keep keep it going and that was sort of the finish of the draw here we have the same plot line but Shiyazaki ended up losing because it's just like you said he is losing to people that he could beat previously during that fourth reign in Marafuji and Sugira and now he is losing to someone that he could feasibly take to a draw so that there is um those notes as well so I'm glad that you you called out the draw there so uh, Shiyazaki did actually break out of his slump fairly early, or at least earlier than I personally would have liked, um, with a match against Manabusoya on March 13th, and found a second victory against Masaki Mochizuki on March 21st. And if you want an example of a fighter who will always check kicks, it is actually Mochizuki, just saying. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And then two days after this match with Mochizuki, um, Shiyazaki defeated Katsuko Nakajima, who had recently lost the GHC, in a singles match on March 23rd. And after this match, Shiyazaki loudly declared, I am Noah, before the fans, claiming to have won back his rights to the phrase after defeating the man who sealed it away from him in the first place. I don't agree with this, but that's what they wanted. That's the storyline. That's the booking. It's out of my hands. But I thought that Shiyazaki should do a little bit more climbing first. So crawling even. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's what this year sort of unfortunately becomes. You know, we had, I think, really wanted to have a much longer sort of period of Shiyazaki trying to figure out who he is. And Mm -hmm going through that slump and being put through his paces, because how could you not want to see him continue to do that after how compelling just those four matches were, but there's a lot of outside circumstances that sort of prevent this from happening. But I agree with you. I think that him reclaiming, I am Noah simply because he defeated Nakajima in a singles match in March. um, That wasn't my favorite decision either. Yeah, I agree. And a lot of people are very um, down on that match uh, as well, because it doesn't have the tension that I think a lot of people expected. And um, I I actually enjoyed that match just fine. Thought that it sort of established the two as rivals rather than having all this tense history together. 
in the end, I was mostly just disappointed in, I guess, the outcome, but also just Shiazaki immediately getting that I am Noah back and um, just getting all this momentum back that he sort of didn't really earn at that point. It just, it didn't, it didn't sit right with me. I'm with you on a lot of that. And I think it's funny you bring up that people were disappointed because there wasn't a lot of heat between Shiazaki and Nakajima. I think that well, for one, that's actually not a match I rewatched. And now I'm kind of compelled to go rewatch it. So that's one thing. Number two, I think that this is just my little hot take of the episode. I mm. think that people have fundamentally misunderstood and misrepresented the Axis storyline and feud. And I'm just going to say now that in 2023, we're going to do a whole thing on it, a multi-part series on the fourth, Chio's fourth reign. And that will include going into the Axis feud if you will so I think that there is probably meaning to take from this singles match though I need to rewatch that to figure out if it's there if there's storyline there if maybe two people didn't show up to a match we'll have to see but I do I do stand by the assertion that there are people who have fundamentally misrepresented the Axis storyline we will rewatch that match. I have some things to say about that match, but we're going to save it for a future episode. So put that in the teaser pocket for you guys and uh, <laughs> let that tickle your interest. But yeah, he he did get a lot of momentum at this point, And um, he used that to challenge Kazuki Fujita for the GHC heavyweight title. And that match was set for April 30th at Rogoku Kokugikan. However, on April 26th, Fujita tested positive for COVID-19 and vacated the title. During the press announcement of Fujita vacating the belt, Kaito Kiyomiya nominated himself as Shiyazaki's opponent. I really liked that moment. We will revisit that one later. Um, and Shiyazaki did accept Kiyomiya's feelings. He says, you know, straight up as a quote, like, I accept your feelings. And the match was made for April 30th. And uh, that that match was just beautiful. It was it was very sweet and it showed a lot of the bond between them. I had mentioned earlier that those two just have a very, very um, strong and sweet um, bond. And you get this just incredible battle between the two faces of Noah fighting for the future of the company and just this impossible situation, this really uneasy situation. And um, Yoshiazaki does end up winning. Uh, the GHC title for the fifth time, breaking the record. And he proudly proclaims, I am Noah to the Rogoku crowd. I'm with you. I think that this match is, um, it's a highlight of the year. And I think that it's something that might be missed in people's lists because of just the nature of some of the more contentious booking issues that mm -hmm. were going on in Noah and people's perceptions of that. But Chiyazaki and Kaito were given an incredible sort of assignment and what they had to go out there and do on short notice with Fujita being sick. And um, they delivered something that only the two of them would have been able to deliver. It is specific to them and their relationship with each other. And you can see that in the pin uh, when Shiyazaki yes. pins him. I mean, that was a man who was very grateful for Kaito and you can feel that in the pin. And um, I do want to mention too, that Shiyazaki in winning the GHC heavyweight title for the fifth time, he became the first to get to five because him, Marafuji and Sugira had been tied at four at that point. So Shiyazaki is the one who became the first to get to five. How do you feel about that? I, uh, 
was certainly wandering in circles messaging you about that. <laughs> um, I um... There's no video to these, but you should have seen my smug little face and Alicia's <laughs> knowing I caught her in a trap. Yeah, you were, you were none too happy. Um, that well, I, I don't want to... I, yeah, I guess that was the thing for me. It's because uh, I love Shiazaki. I don't want that to come off like oh, um, yeah. I don't adore him. And um, like he's not been one of my favorite wrestlers for years. But I really thought that it would have been Sugira and hadn't been anticipating that and really had thought that Sugira would make it to five this year and was wrong. Yeah. And that's sort of life and that's fine. But I was I was surprised in the end that it was Shiazaki who would make it to five first and I think that we'll never really know what they are planning to do with Fujita uh I think I mentioned this on the wrestling podcast we made an appearance over there I had some ideas about where they were potentially going with Fujita's booking based on um and we'll talk we'll talk about this when we get to real Noah too but I had some ideas about where things were going with that booking and what we might see out of uh real Noah and also Shiazaki through that booking but well we'll obviously never know but it was surprising to me that it was Shio it felt kind of strange and it certainly feels even stranger knowing what happens next. Yeah, that's a beautiful segue. <laughs> Couldn't have done it better <laughs> myself. So immediately after the match, he was challenged by Noah's mysterious wrestler X, the biggest X in history, who appeared earlier in that show. Yes, none other than NJPW's beloved bread man, Satoshi Kojima. Uh, the match was made for Cyber Fight's annual Cyber Fight Festival on June 12th, 2022. Uh, the, this match, <laughs> Let, what it, what can we say about this match? So um, let's start with that entrance from Go Shigazaki, shall we? Above even God? <laughs> um, yeah, so one of my favorite tweets that have come out of Alicia for all time <laughs> was her quoting, I think it was about Godzilla. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that he he came out above um everything. Uh he was elevated on this platform in full regalia, just in this big, I guess like almost Roman Grecian, like kingly emperor-like. Um, imagery and he is above all of cyber fight festival and he's above the ghc who um, eventually a, a lovely dancer hands it off to him and he carries it into the ring and as you said he is above everything above even god <laughs> <laughs> that is how he projects himself and that's he, how he portrays himself walking out of this ring with just this pure determined coldness in his eyes with this tr- like extra extended cloak on that extends all the way down the um the ramp it's it's just an absolute incredible escalation from that entrance at the Nippon Budokan and like I said it it was already a really harrowing entrance so the fact that he upped the ante here just speaks towards his um I as a showman and as a storyteller and a professional wrestler no couldn't have said it any better myself I mean this this entrance was outstanding i'd love to hear one day more of his thoughts on it and how it came to be and his creative process toward it but shiazaki is just a incredible he has an incredible mind for wrestling as a whole not just in how to be a professional wrestler how to be in the ring how to wrestle but in the entire the entire process of it how to tell how to tell a story how to 
put together these sort of visual cues, right? To, to explain to you where he is and his character. And this, it's just, this is like a really once in a lifetime, beautiful display for him, right? Because they only get to do something like cyber fight once a year. And how many times is he going to be the GHC heavyweight champion walking into one? Mm. So we don't know. So we don't know. We don't know. So this is something where he gets the opportunity to really show um, just how creative he is, just how you know smart he yeah. is at crafting these incredible visual cues to show where he is as a character and what this year has been like for him. And um, it's outstanding. It really is, you know, 2022 is a strange year in wrestling, sure. a strange year of high highs and low lows, which we'll really talk about as we get into real Noah as well. But one of the high points of this year was certainly that cyber fight entrance. Yeah, that is absolutely it. And uh, this match was quite good. Uh, probably not my favorite of the ones we all rewatched, but I did really, really like this match. And one thing I wanted to note was that Shizaki did an Emerald Flosion, which you and I both noted. Actually, when you when you watched this match, I had already watched it. Um, you messaged me immediately. You were like, was that an Emerald Flosion? Um, and yeah, he, he did. Um, and that's just extremely important and paints just what Shiyazaki is trying to live up to and this image of himself that he's just desperately striving towards and that is not enough and Shiyazaki lost in a zero defense reign to Satoshi Kojima we had a whole lot of zero defense reigns and I have a whole lot of opinions about all of them but um this one was just an absolute tragedy to me to um sort of spend Shiyazaki's fifth reign with a couple of, I guess, like posters of himself holding the title and a few mid-card matches and a nice little build with Kojima, which that build is fun. There's a little karaoke battle in there that you might want to check out on YouTube. Um, But other than that, like this reign really didn't amount to much other than an incredible cyber fight entrance and a really, really good match. Yeah, I had a lot of uh, opinions and feelings coming out of them giving Shiyazaki a zero defense reign in 2022. I, I don't know. I don't really know him. I guess it maybe hurts a little more. I, here's the thing. If I back up and I go to the fourth reign, I didn't care really that he lost to Mudo. It didn't bother me. I know that pissed a lot of people off. Didn't bother me because to me, he had beaten Sugira. That's all. Rain was, rain was good. We were good to go. That solidified the legacy of the fourth reign to me was him defeating Sugira. So him losing to Mudo and also knowing that he needed to take time off for that injury. That doesn't, that stuff doesn't bother me at all. However, when you follow that up with his fifth reign being a zero defense reign and he's dropping it to Satoshi Kojima, there is something uncomfortable about that. There is something that feels like is Noah repeating mistakes of the past. What are we doing here? What are we doing with, Shiyazaki, who is supposed to be mm-hmm. your ace, effectively. Noah's a strange company because we have a lot of ace figures walking around, right? There's or- a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of different figures that we can talk about. We have a symbol of the arc. We have Sugira. We have this. We have that. You have Kaito. You have, you know, there's there's a lot of, Noah's a complicated company. However, this didn't feel good. And I know that people also don't like to address that because Satoshi Kojima 
is um, for all intents and purposes, just sort of a lovely man who has just sort of built all this goodwill over the years because he's such a joy um, to have around. And he's a great wrestler and he has not gotten his flowers in the way that he has deserved over the years. And we could probably say a lot about his all Japan years as well. So like, there's a lot of layers to why people I think feel uncomfortable and why it's more acceptable that he lost to Kojima, but it wasn't acceptable he lost to Muto, right? But there is, to me, they are almost really the same. They, they should almost feel the same, right? So it's all, it's all extremely complicated, but it, because it's Shiyazaki and because it's his fifth reign, I don't feel good about it being a zero defense reign. I didn't like this. And I felt with the timing of it, I said on the, on the wrestling podcast with Liam and Gareth and you, I said, Noah's issue with this is going to be timing and optics. What does it say right now that Shiyazaki has a zero defense reign and you're giving this outsider, this new Japan wrestler, your belt? during this period of time where you're coming off of a lot of strife around the booking and the direction of the company timing optics what does it say so yeah a lot of very complicated feelings about about this but i i definitely um as good a match as it was and as much as i like kojima i didn't appreciate shizaki having a zero defense fifth reign and i think i'm glad that you brought that up and the timing and the optics of it all because that is going to become very uh, very very important for the rest of the year and for all of these storylines literally every single one of them and a lot of them involving Kojima so um it is, it is really really good that you uh brought that to the attention so after this Shiyazaki fell sort of into his own holding pattern, participating in tag matches with varying degrees of success. Um, He did have some issues with his neck just before the N1 and then came back um, in time for the N1 victory with a chance to make it to the finals. Um, He did almost make it through there. Um, However, he fell to Hideki Suzuki, who went on to the finals against eventual winner Kaito Kiyomiya. And after this tournament, uh, Shiyazaki decided to take time off because of injuries he didn't really clarify exactly what was going on there but um, he has taken time off on October 30th Shiyazaki did announce that he would be making his comeback soon uh, but he has not given us an exact date he did however make this announcement with a custom-made t-shirt with a cute little typo on it um, and dyed green hair which I always find very very interesting that he's sort of upping the ante there with how much emerald he's going to be putting on his body And then uh, a loud and proud voice proclaiming, of course, I am Noah. So we are very excited to see him coming back and very interested to see where he's going to be going with this sort of identity crisis character because him dyeing his hair green really speaks to, I think we're just going to be continuing on that wagon there. We're getting to the Okada and the balloon days of Go. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm seeing here. That's what I'm thinking is the the green Kool-Aid dyed hair. Um, Actually, it's a very nice even dye. It looked great. All right. So we're going to move right on along. I know we had a lot to say about Shiyazaki, but we're going to talk a little bit about uh, our next one, and that's going to be Katsuko Nakajima. And so Nakajima had a pretty tough year, all things considered, but it did start very well. Uh, defending the GHC title in the Nippon Budokan against Go Shiyazaki, of course, on January 1st. And I did want to talk a little bit about his GHC heavyweight reign in retrospect, because I do think that the reign in general accomplished a lot for him. And it established three extremely important traits of his that informed who he is to Noah and what I Am Noah actually is to him. 
And the first thing I want to talk about is sort of this overarching theme of his reign, and that's going to be his past. Um, straight up, rather than running away from his past, you see him sort of accepting it, or um, in some cases, fighting against it or fighting it. Um, we'll talk about that with Masa. <laughs> but um, you can see this first off in the first defense against Masa Dotanika on October 30th, a man he had never defeated before that day. And then you can see this again in that stupendous 60-minute draw with Keno on November 28th. 2021, he tapped deep into his roots as a trainee of Kensuke Sasaki throughout multiple points during that match. And commentary did make note of this throughout the entire thing. Japanese commentary. Yes, <laughs> that is true. Japanese commentary did make note of it. So most notable, of course, were Nakajima's lariats at the end of the match, just sort of desperate and pulling out Kensuke's own lariats in a move of just raw desperation after 59 minutes of fighting for his life. Just an incredible moment. And um, he sort of carried that sort of piece of himself into that match with Go Shiyazaki, who he defeated with Akira Hokuto's Northern Lights Bomb. And Keno makes note of both of those moments in his February 8th shoe pro column, stating that it was no coincidence that Nakajima had been using his Kensuke office roots as, and I quote, trump cards when he's in a tricky situation in a match. Later in January, his roots sort of came back to bite him, as it were, in the form of Masakita Mia, who challenged for the belt on January 4th, proclaiming that I am Noah too, you bastard just in that perfect Masakitamiya <laughs> way, laying claim to the title. So maybe we'll add him to one of these episodes someday. We'll see <laughs> if, if the booking ever gets on his side. Anyway, uh, Masa and Nakajima re revisited their rivalry on January 26th. And there's so much I could talk about towards their rivalry and history together in that match. Um, however, the most important thing to take away here is Nakajima's sort of attitude during that match his behavior towards Masa. He doesn't have that cool collected personality, that, you know, dangerous smirk, um, that sort of predatory wolf. Instead, he was very, very mean and angry and almost a little scared at parts. And um, he, at the end, throws out Masa after a moment of looking like he might give his junior from the dojo a little bit of respect he refuses, throws him out, and chucks him the ice pack, and immediately resorted to his age-old nickname for Kitamiya, calling him his cute junior. You and I just talked about that match this morning, because I, since re-watching it, I have not been able to stop thinking about it, because it is a different match than the other matches in this reign. And mm -hmm. you would almost think in watching it through things the first time that perhaps he breaks away thematically from what he's working on in the first several matches. But yes. it actually doesn't because Masa is the only person who can make him act like that. And yeah. it's because they have that just deep-seated rivalry that they're going to revisit every time. And it's going to make Nakajima kind of come out of the work that he's been doing on his character because he's always going to be brought back to a very different place via Masa. But you're left with that feeling of, uh, you, you you touch on it in that he, um, during the match, like at times he does look afraid because Masa is the only person that makes him feel like, oh my God, I'm going to lose or I might lose if I don't figure out a way to stop him. And that's so interesting and so compelling. And then the throwing Masa out of the ring is so 
it's so rooted in a deep insecurity of, well, he could have showed me up and now I have to take that control because I'm the champion. And it's just so interesting to see him revert to some of that stuff there. It's really a great match that is going to get lost in the shuffle when everyone's doing their sort of wrap up for the year. But I urge people listening to this to go back to that match and revisit it because it's so good. And I just wish that it hadn't happened at, I guess, that point in the year, or maybe like, I think that, I don't know. I think that match would have also really benefited from, this is the only time I'm going to say this, that match would have benefited from crowd noise as well, but (laughs) it's the only time I'm going to say this, but I love that match. Yeah. One per episode. That's going to be my one, but definitely revisit that one because it has great story points in it. Yeah. And and I'd say the whole theme there was definitely him revisiting the past and getting ready to move towards the future, which is something that becomes important throughout the year through for all of them, really, um, especially the remaining uh, guys, Nakajima, um, Kaito, and then of course, Keno. And then the second sort of huge thing was this feeling of camaraderie within Congo after Nakajima won the belt on October 10th against 2021 against Naomichi Marafuji. He stood alongside the other members of Congo getting into this formation he had never gotten into before. He usually stands separate and he holds up the belt proudly in the center of the ring. And this becomes a really important thing for him. When he defeated Shiyazaki, he again invited all the members of Congo to stand before him, before the Budokan crowd, and hands the mic over to Keno, who, you know, closes the Budokan with his big rousing speech about NJPW and being bad and all that stuff. We'll talk about that in a bit. And then he hands the mic back to Nakajima, and Nakajima stands there proudly before declaring not I am Noah or his usual Oregon Noah da. But Ore Tachiwa Noada, we are Noah. And streamers fall over Budokan as Nakajima posed one last time with the people who helped him get to where he is. And this feeling of Noah not being a person, but a group of people all working towards a goal with their strong beliefs united. Maybe they're walking separately, maybe they're going about it in different ways, but in the end, they are all working towards that dream of being Noah and carrying Noah forward. And that sort of brings us to that third component, which is not actually from a championship match, but at the NJPW crossover show on January 8th. And of course we have Congo that stood proud against NJPW's Los Ingonables de Japón in a show of strength between two promotions. Much of the show's promotion up to that point had been about collaboration between the two companies. However, Nakajima, Keno, and all of Congo walked into this match actually a little differently. And I will speak on Keno's feelings on that briefly. But what's important here is how Nakajima approached this match as champion. He was focused mostly on Shingo Takagi, who was IWGP champion during the build. He lost it at Wrestle Kingdom. But um, Takagi had stated that there was little benefit for NJPW to face off against Noah at a press conference on December 17th, just before the show. And in response to this, Nakajima stated, obviously NJPW thought there would be some benefit in facing a hot rising Noah or this whole thing wouldn't have happened. NJPW is the industry leader, but... Perhaps the non-leader, Noah, has something the leader doesn't. 
Mm -hmm. He's very <laughs> smug about it. But I really think that this shows that in the end, Nakajima, even though he does stand apart and walk his own path a lot of the times, he wants to elevate Noah and he has a lot of pride in the product and he has a lot of protective feelings towards the product and towards, you know, Congo and just Noah on a whole. And I don't think it's an accident that he lost against an outsider from NJPW. I really don't. I think there's a story there in, you know, this protector. And I think it's the same with Shiazaki losing to Muto, that there's something to be said there with this ace character losing to an outsider. It's meant to be seen as a bad thing. And um, so I think, I think there is stuff there and I think there's stuff in this reign. I think it ended a little better than a lot of people are willing to give it credit for. I don't like that match at all, like at all, but I think it ended a little better story-wise than people are willing to, to sort of give it. I completely agree with you. I sort of just outright reject the notion that Nakajima had a bad reign, that this was, you know, that, that, you know, he's just not destined to have a good GHC heavyweight reign. Um, I've seen a lot of that since he lost and um, mm -hmm. I just outright reject it. I just don't agree with that. So I think that that's wrong. But however, what I wanted to touch on before we get into what you're about to talk about next with Nakajima actually losing it, I wanted to say something about uh, Kenta, of course. I wanted to say, you know, because you, you made me think of this because you were talking about Nakajima's goals being self-serving. And I think that that is how you can interpret a lot of Kenta's goals um, yes. over the years, Kenta is a very self-serving person. And even when he was in Noah and he's talking about Noah as a company and wanting to build Noah and wanting to make Noah a bigger and better company and kind of pull it out of, you know, despair at times because they were not selling tickets and they had money issues and whatever his goals are still inherently self-serving because he's always talking about himself. He's talking about the company, but he's always talking about himself and what he, um, as a wrestler can do to make Noah better. Right. So yeah. inherently you can interpret that as very similar to how Nakajima talks. However, Kenta has this ability, even when he's working within uh, factions like No Mercy, for example, Kenta can make himself alone in crowded rooms. He can make himself alone within a faction. He's still a lone figure a lot of the time in this way. Nakajima does not have this quality, and that's where he differs so dramatically from Kenta, even though you could read them as sort of similar in the way they present their goal. So I just wanted to sort of mention that. I think that's the important part of what you're saying about Nakajima and the way he talks about his own goals, the way he talks about Congo, and the way he talks about Noah. He is not someone who is rejecting the idea of bringing people together for the common goal of being Noah, as you just said, right? I think that's important. Whereas Kenta, for example, was someone who was always sort of a lone figure and self-serving um, in that way. Yeah, there's a really interesting balance with him is that he wants to walk his own path, but he is a wolf and a wolf is a pack animal in the end. So there's there's that common ground. And um, it's, it's just really interesting. I could talk about that one at length for sure. So yeah, throughout this reign, and I think, you know, this is really what you're saying here is that Nakajima found his strong belief. Um, this reign was about his his strong belief in a lot of different ways. And that's why upon losing the belt to Fujita on February 23rd, Nakashima didn't really lose a lot of himself in the in the process compared to the last time. He lost that GHC and, and we all know what happens. We he got the goatee, he got the mustache, he got a perm, and you know, the rest is history. 
but um, he he wasn't stenched in that feeling of failure that you got last time. Instead, he takes these three components and he sort of continues to establish his place in Noah and look for his own place in Noah. And you, to that end, sort of have this fairly quiet spring with several mid-card tag matches. He did... However, challenge for the tag belts with Keno against Sugira and Hideki Suzuki. Uh, during this program, Nakajima began to adopt the catchphrase, we're the only ones, in regards to him and Keno. During a press conference, he pressed that they were the only ones who could defeat this incredibly strong tag team and take Noah to the future past these Ojisans, or aging uncles. They did, however, lose this match on April 30th, but this did not change Nakajima's resolve to push Noah into the future alongside his Congo comrades. This is like a really important theme for him, for Keno, and it's going to keep coming up and coming up and coming up and coming up, and we're going to end on it too. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, <geez, Hans. laughs> Anyway, um... So this, once again, actually was sort of seen during a press conference on June 1st before Cyberfight Festival 2022. And due to Marafuji's unfortunate and urgent need for surgery, just before the event, he was removed from a six-man tag match with Kotoge Atsushi and Yoshiki Inamura against DDT's Endo Tetsuya, Junakiyama, and Kazusada Higuchi. And while this particular match ended tragically for both Endo and Nakajima, after an unfortunate palm strike took Endo out and gave him a, con- a concussion about six minutes into the match, we do speak on that with Gareth and Liam as well. And um, I would defer you to that because Alicia did speak beautifully on um, that situation. Um, however, I want to speak on the press conference in which Nakajima nominated himself for the match. He spoke to Katoge and villainously broke him down. This was like Keno levels of mean to Katoge, um, calling both him and Inamura sloppy and pathetic. And he argued that Katoge was focused on the past and speaking Katoge the whole time was talking about his 10 years in wrestling. Nakajima was just beside himself and said that that would spell failure if Kotoge didn't aim straight for Akiyama. And I found that interesting, and I found it really spoke to Nakajima's focus on aiming for the future and sort of uh, taking the past and using it to push yourself forward. Uh, Nakajima then pulls out a knife (laughs) and rips apart a sign with DDT's logo on it before telling uh, DDT to, and I quote, don't go anywhere near Noah again before declaring Orega Noada. And to me, this speaks uh, to the path he's currently on, a face of Noah who wants to push it forward along his own path. And he wants to protect Noah at that same time. So after the festival, Nakajima kept mostly the mid-card multi-man tag matches again with Congo until the N1 began on August 11th. He was in the very first match of the tournament, facing off against none other than his cute junior, Masakita Mia. He won this match and began his campaign to win the third and one victory in a row, which is something only he could do. He got extremely close, ending the tournament on 10 points. 
but unfortunately failed to advance thanks to Kaito Kiyomiya defeating Satoshi Kojima on the last day on August 28th, winning B-Block on a tiebreaker because he did actually defeat Nakajima. So Nakajima actually blamed sort of himself for this, but he also blamed Kojima uh, during the backstage comments. He defeated Kojima himself the day before, stating that he must have worn Kojima out too much for him to defeat Kaito. And then he said some very disparaging things about Kojima, calling him sort of a washed up old man He that he got gassed. Um, was effectively what he said. It's like, oh, I was rooting for Kojima. I guess he got gassed because I beat him up too much um, was was where he went with that. And it's it's actually a really funny backstage comment. So you start to see this attitude towards older wrestlers and Kojima specifically carry over into following months. On September 25th, Nakajima had his chance to take on Keiji Muto during his retirement tour and he was focused on humiliating the older wrestler with his own moves. He had some really good spots in that match. He did his little, uh, I think it was like his handspring. <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> but he did end up losing. He took a pin to Mudo in 20 minutes and 35 seconds. Um, he would not be held back, though. And on October 7th, 2022, he pinned Satoshi Kojima in an eight-man tag match and challenged for his and Sugiura's tag belts with Keno, setting the match for October 30th, 2022. So exactly six months after the duo's last challenge for the belt. Once again, Nakajima visited this phrase of we're the only ones. However, this time he was a lot more specific, stating that he and Keno were the only ones who could breathe fresh life into the tag titles, saving them from tired old men. And he actually switched from Oji-sans to Osans, which is more like grandpa than uncles. So Hideki apparently is, is just barely young enough to, uh, to dodge the Osan label. However, um, Kojima and Sugira, far too old. Nakajima specifically states, Noah needs me and Keno, which I thought was really, really strong and really powerful and speaks towards where Nakajima is and how he sees that sort of younger generation, those those people who are on the cusp like him and Keno. Uh, later in the next backstage comments, Nakajima continues with this feeling of camaraderie here by finishing one of Keno's rants with a play on Keno's own uh, Suite Koi follow me catchphrase by changing it to follow us or uh, or touchy Suite Koi, calling back in a lot of ways to Ore Tachiwan no Ada. So I really like that. After their defeat on October 30th, Keno proposed a produced show, Diamond 5, on December 18th, 2022 stating that the goal was for the members of Congo to regain their strong belief in a match. For his opponent to set him on the right path, Nakajima chose to face off against Satoshi Kojima, which I think is very telling and very interesting. I think we've got a lot of story left in Nakajima um, that he's sort of um, very aiming towards Kojima at this point. He sees him as a um a symbol that he needs to defeat to get to his own I am Noah um get get back to the I am Noah if it were and it probably shouldn't be overlooked that Nakajima does have roots in New Japan mm, so who's to say if that's necessarily inherently a connection there but it is kind of interesting to think about absolutely so as he would say uh keep an eye on him or keep an eye on me he likes to say that a lot that um 
you definitely will want to do that uh, coming into the Budokan and then after. So now we get his tag partner who, in my opinion, probably had the biggest year for 2022. And I have a lot to say on it. And that would be none other than Keno. Keno started out 2022 defending the national title on his birthday, January 1st, to Kaito Kiyomiya and defended it one more time on January 5th with a surprise match against Daisuke Harada. Can't forget that one. However, the most important thing to note from this early set of shows was his storyline and attitude going into the NJPW crossover show on January 8th in Yokohama. His primary determination was to, and I quote, turn the wrestling world on its head. He stated in a shoe pro column after the event on January 2nd, and he wanted to disrupt the rankings in the pro industry by having Noah overtake NJPW in a single night. He spoke on those feelings after Nakajima defended his title in the Nippon Budokan, and he spoke on those feelings again on January 5th in the Tokyo Dome while storming into NJPW's Wrestle Kingdom with the rest of the Noah roster, which is an incredibly cool moment. Please check that one out on YouTube. I think it's actually significant to note that Keno really led the charge on the storytelling here. He had the mic the entire time uh, in the dome, mocking NJPW for having empty seats and insulting LIJ for being unable to stand up for their promotion in the way Keno always defends Noah. This sets the tone for Keno's personality, but also the theme of Keno's year, and that's the power of belief and the power of words. When he lost this match to LIJ, he was unable to speak on the matter. He didn't do any backstages at all. And in that February 2nd issue of Shoe Pro, he speaks on this, stating, the basic premise is that my fight within Noah is more important than the fight I had with New Japan. So I didn't want to talk about anything. If I had commented after losing a match, no matter how witty my words were, I would leave the impression that I was being dragged into a rivalry within New Japan. I wanted to avoid that. And this just shows how deeply important he considers the power of words in wrestling, going so far as to say it would ruin the story if he did a backstage comment because he viewed the fight against New Japan as a fight for his and for Noah's life. To him, wrestling is all about communication. And that becomes a huge theme for him throughout the year, whether by saying something or by speaking through silence, honestly. Um, here he says, words are a tool to communicate something to someone. This is how I get my feelings across more than any superficial comment can. I think that no comment was the most eloquent thing I could have said. I wanted to create a stir on both sides of the issue. That's what I'm all about, isn't it? <laughs> and that is, that's kind of, despite this loss, and this is another huge theme we're going to see, um, he did not let himself stay down for very long. On January 16th, he and Manabu Soya unsuccessfully challenged Marafuji and Muto for the GHC heavyweight tag titles. Then, less than a week later, he ended up losing the GHC national title to Masakatsu Funaki on January 22nd. Alicia's giving me a face. Immediately <laughs> after, Funaki asked to join Kongo, citing that he wished to work more closely with Keno and Nakajima after seeing their 60-minute draw last year. 
I hate this. <laughs> I still hate this. It's so annoying. It's okay. He's he turned into uh, Congo's sweet little grandpa very quickly. So it was it was very charming in some ways. I've gotten Alicia to admit that. <laughs> that one video you talked about was charming. The rest of it's been frustrating. But anyway. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. This quickly turned into Keno and Funaki teaming up together for a tag team tournament for the vacated tag titles after Muto and Marafuji had to give the belts up for Muto's injury. And that would have been on March 13th, 2022. They were in the semifinals for the tournament, but they did fall to eventual winners Sugira and Hideki Suzuki. I can't stress enough how little Keno was left in a holding pattern this year because on March 24th, Keno choked out Takashisa to challenge for the GHC tag titles for a third time this year with Nakajima, of course, as his tag partner. And we discussed sort of the build and work that went towards this match with Nakajima. However, it is important to note here how in tandem they both were with regards to fighting back against the aging champions, with Keno especially focusing hard on the age of both competitors during the build. These matches are so good to revisit. The build build to it in that they had those singles matches um, as well, and then the matches, the tag match itself. I mean... As, as strange as it is that Keno has challenged for these belts like 107 times this year, this build and these particular tag partners, this is a high point, I think, in Noah's year. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I really, really enjoyed the whole build to this one. And I enjoyed the build to the next tag challenge they have, too. But I think this one was probably my favorite. Those two singles matches are really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, they sort of got buried under this weird, like, middle beginning part of the year but you definitely want to seek them out and then here comes to me probably the biggest part of Keno's storyline this year and biggest character development this year and that is going to be on April 13th Keno gets all dressed up in his suit and makes this huge announcement that he'd been teasing for weeks and that would be that he is launching a YouTube channel and he says this during a press conference for Noah Majestic at Rogoku Kokugi-Con And this is just a huge piece of his definition of I am Noah. And this is what I was saying before with just the power of words that he has and his ability to utilize media. This man just cannot be held back in terms of opportunities and progress. And he also cannot be silenced, which is extremely important. In the May 6, 2022 issue of Shukan Pro Wrestling, Keno speaks on the formation of the channel and how he had full support from Abema and Cyber Agent, the president of Cyber Agent, actually, rather than Cyberfight. He stated that he actually went above Cyberfight's head when proposing the channel idea. So therefore, this channel, in a lot of ways, is an act of rebellion. During that April 13th press conference, he stated that he wanted the channel to speak on things he could not say in his shoe pro column or to speak on things that he ran out of time for as well in his shoe pro column. He just talks a lot. (laughs) (laughs) He talks so much, but it's important. And that is what he uses the channel for. And uh, from this point on, we're going to sort of pepper that in and talk about um, what he 
sort of talks about in the channel, but it's a huge tool for storytelling for him. Many videos, especially his live streams, speak on current events in the wrestling world and his opinions and often his overall dissatisfaction with Noah and his desire to change it. And more than once, these opinions have formed in programs for him, allowing him to push forward in his career and in the ring. And that's the power of words to me. That's kind of strength to be the voice of the people. And now he just has a louder amplifier to reach more and more ears. His YouTube is really just a powerful tool for him. They, they gave him something that he can use and he uses it very, very well. Another thing that it accomplishes, and um, that's something I didn't really think about, but this is very interesting to me. And this was written about extensively by popular sumo journalist Kotaro Nishio in his piece, I haven't been watching professional wrestling lately, but I'm serious about heels. A story about being addicted to Keno. What a headline. A headline. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you can see why I clicked on it. But he, he looks deep into Keno's YouTube channel as a means to bridge Keno's harsh heel persona with a softer, more sincere and fun loving character. The writer is, as said in the headline, a lapsed fan and speaks on how Keno's impression at first glance is like a small dog barking in the ring, a heel without much bite. Nishio writes, what is good about Keno Channel that is not just a nice guy sales pitch, but it is also effectively still communicating his anti-establishment character and message. The channel is structured in such a way that his rebellious character is still there, but it shows a glimpse of the underlying humanity of the wrestler, thus deepening his performance as a wrestler and allowing us to love his humanity. This is an important way Keno can bring his character to life through people who are newer to the promotion and may easily misunderstand him as a heel. I love this. And it just really exemplifies why Keno having this YouTube channel is so important. In some ways, it does remind me of Mara Fuji's choice to have his follow me. And they're two mm, yes. extremely different mediums because you have to pay to view Mara Fuji's follow me. Keno's channel is free, obviously. And it's, you know, Mara Fuji can do some videos on his follow me. He mostly posts a lot of photos and some text and things like that. So they're very different mediums, but they do speak to that need for both of them to have that like personal touch and connection to their communications with fans and with people who are going to be looking in on them and Noah. And Keno does this in a much more forward-facing and public way than Marafuji is doing because he's using follow me to speak to people that follow him in a very direct way, almost like a very private circle of people that are going to be looking at his his information but it is sort of similar to me and but I also think that it's very unique to Keno because there's I know Kaito has a new channel and that's you know mm -hmm. that's, that's cute and whatever and I can see how that'll work in his favor but Mara Fuji probably couldn't have a YouTube channel in the way that Keno has it wouldn't be the same it wouldn't be as successful in the way that Keno can make this this kind of medium work for him and I feel that way about a lot of the other Noah wrestlers it doesn't really matter that you know the popularity of, of certain wrestlers versus Keno Keno can make this work for him in a way that other people just can't do. Yeah, it's exactly that. And I actually do want to state that uh, Keno really, really respects and admires the way that Marafuji communicates with his fans. Um, that's something that he has made note of, that um, he sees that as being a form of branding that not a lot of wrestlers can do and um, has stated that 
uh, Marafuji is exemplary for doing that. So they're they're doing it different methods, but at the same time, I think they are looking to accomplish the same goal. So I'm glad you mentioned that. But yeah, that's that's exactly it. Is that um, Keno is just he he knows how to use media. <laughs> that is the power of words. We'll mm-hmm. we'll say that he knows how to use the power of words. Speaking on that, the day after on May first. After his unsuccessful tag challenge with Nakajima, he visited DDT and got into the ring, stating that he was unsatisfied with Cyberfight president Sanchiro Takagi, his nemesis of nearly two years now. And he was particularly dissatisfied with the promotion of the upcoming Cyberfight festival, and he insisted on becoming the PR agent of the event. This eventually did happen, um, naming him the official Cyberfight Festival PR officer for the event, which I think speaks very loudly towards Keno's theme and value towards voice and communication and his attempts that he makes throughout the year to reach out towards fans, which we just uh, spoke on. Daisuke Sasaki stepped into that ring on May 1st and challenged him. And um, made it, they made a match, an incredible hardcore match. Please check that out. And um, amazing both of them, entrances. Outstanding. Oh, a- absolutely incredible entrances. Uh, everything about this match, I could talk about it four hours and um i did speak on that one going back to um that wrestling podcast with gareth and liam i sort of gave all of my takes there you can definitely go and listen to that but um in the end it is about two men defending their promotion and carrying the pride of their promotion on their back and keno does walk in with the pride of noah and the pride of congo congo did help him out during that match which is very important and uh, he won on june 12th 2022 he won he defended noah he used that momentum to walk in after the ghc heavyweight bout which was the main event of cyber fight festival and challenged the brand new champion satoshi kojima he spoke really harsh words against not only kojima but also against noah for giving cushy booking and positions to njpw wrestlers such as not only kojima but also kazuki fujita and even keiji muto and with those words those simple words keno painted this huge story about a promotion that was under fire from aging njpw wrestlers looking for an easy payday And that match was made for the Nippon Budokan on July 16th, 2022. And there is so much I could say about that build and how it utilized backstage promos and YouTube videos to forward this really fun, fast-paced, and oftentimes kind of heavy story. And I would love to talk or write more about that one later. Um, But the most important thing to note here is that this story was centered around this uncertain future for Noah and the idea of the future in general. Kojimi was an outsider, and this goes back beautifully to what you were saying about him winning against Go Shiyazaki. And he's an outsider. It's full stop. He has, he's beloved, but at the same time, he represents NJPW and Keno represented himself as a piece of Noah, someone who could take the belt and center it back on Noah. And this becomes crucial in coming months. Mm-hmm. And one thing I would like to note here is that Keno is not Noah born. 
and um, that he was also the very first GHC heavyweight champion who had never known Misawa-san. And this has been noted several times by Japanese commentary, but also by shoe pro writer Hikaru Inoue in a poignant piece called I'll Take You Back to the Budokan, You Bastards, Keno's Journey to the Budokan. And he published that on Noah's blog just before Keno's title match. And he states this because Keno represents not just the heart and soul of Noah, but also an era of Noah that keeps the hardworking spirit of Misawa while sort of pushing forward past that into the future. And I'm going to say it right here. The fact that Keno won the title this year for a second time before Kaito Kiyomiya did is extremely important to note. I do not want to lose anything there. There, It is not an accident. He won it before Kaito. It's mm, a really great point. So this match was just an incredible showcase for Keno. It really was. It consisted of remarkable stamina and really clever defense and offense, including debuting his new super finisher, the Enrin, or the Ring of Flame. And he actually named this finisher in a contest on YouTube, selecting it from a list of comments suggested by the fans. I did submit a comment. He did not pick it. It's fine. Um, but I, I do want to just, um, yeah, I want to talk about this match. This match was really good. Yeah, this is a standout match to be sure. I actually like this match so much more than I like Shiozaki and Kojima from Cyber Fight Festival. I, I know I liked it the first time I watched it, but in rewatching it for us to talk about today, it's like remark. It's just remarkable to me how much more I like it and how I think this is something that has incredible rewatchability compared to um, other things that I've been watching lately from this year. But I love this. It, like you said, it is a, it is a showcase for Keno. It is everything that you, if you want to know Keno, if you want a match that represents everything that is great and everything that is good about Keno as a fighter, and about Kano as someone who has an incredible mind for wrestling. This would be, I think, a great match to show someone. Yeah, I, I really, I just, I love this match. But one thing we talked about earlier today that I just, I found so fascinating was Shiozaki leaning on, you know, the Emerald Flosion and these sort of emblems of the past. Oh, yeah. And, and ended up losing. And then you have Kano, who... You know, he ran, he basically ran through his entire playbook in that match. There was like this whole stretch in the end where he just goes through all the different ways he can end in match because he can end a match in a lot of different ways. That's part of his entire gimmick before landing on this brand new super finisher, the Enrin, which he had sort of been developing for a long time. And um, it just sort of shows that he is not exhausting his playbook. He is not drawing from the past. He is always still working towards that future. And I find it interesting that Kojima's zero defense reign, his his reign sort of ties together those two. And mm -hmm. you almost get an echo of their road to GHC you know, storyline and their 60 minute draw where you have this stubborn man who wants to bulldoze through and, and wants to carry these symbols of the past forward with him versus this extremely clever man who wants to um, push forward in the future and sort of divorce himself from the past and, and is always ever evolving and ever changing. And you have their two philosophies sort of battling it out 
through Satoshi Kojima here. I find that really interesting. And in that way, I really don't think Kojima's reign was transition. I mean, I guess you could call it transitional because it's transitioning between Shiazaki and Keno, but it's almost keeping their rivalry alive, which is just so cool. You're so right. Like it, it's, it is strange because it, it is sort of transitional and yet it just does this beautiful thing of underscoring Keno and Shiazaki's differences, their rivalry. And to your point, like, Shiozaki's war with himself has always been present. There's always been, I think, oh, yeah. an identity crisis present there because even from the point at which he was a much younger man in the company, you know, he was sort of being primed to be this ace and he had these expectations of being, um, you know, kind of imbuing Misawa and Kobashi-san and what that means to have both of those legacies sort of thrust upon you at this very young, you know, point in your in your life and in those formative years of your career, Keno has a very strong sense of self. Yeah, that like, and we'll, oh, we'll yeah. talk, obviously we still have some stuff to cover here with Keno and we're gonna be talking about Keno a lot in 2023 as we get into some other products that we have in mind. But Keno has this incredible sense of self that you know he is very grounded. He knows exactly who he is. Those two things sort of meeting each other in their rivalry is really, really fascinating. Yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly it. And I think that's why they are, as you said, the middle gen rivalry and why they're such a compelling and fa- fascinating rivalry that really needs more attention from the booking. So fingers crossed we'll someday get there. Keno unfortunately only held the title for 71 days. And the majority of that was through the N1 victory tour. And um, he had a chance to make it to the finals, but lost to Kazuki Fujita on the last day costing him the shot and advancing Hideki Suzuki. Kaito Kiyomiya would go on to win the N1 and challenge Keno on September 25th, successfully defeating his rival and becoming the 41st GHC heavyweight champion. This match was actually stupendous, and I will speak more on it when we talk more about Kaito, because I do think Kaito was sort of the main character of that match. For now, I would like to turn it over to Keno's backstage comments and YouTube video after the loss, because I find them very, very interesting. In the backstages, he was devastated in a way we really don't get to see Keno. He's usually actually pretty calm, despite everybody calling him very angry. He, he tends to be very composed. But uh, in this case, he was really demanding to know why Kaito always seemed to get the better of him just as he was starting to gain momentum, feeling as though his own star had been extinguished early, stating, every time I'm about to make big waves, I get defeated by Kiyomiya, the guy the company favors. What is this? Always, always, always. It's just, that broke my heart. Um, It was just so much frustration. And to me, this is really significant. Remember that Keno knows how to keep his mouth shut when he loses, if we go back to January 8th, because he can see not making a comment as a comment of itself. He spoke here because he had a story to tell. I wouldn't say he had any like shoot animosity towards the company. When When he says these things about Kaito, I don't really think he's speaking on shoot resentment. I just really wanted to make that clear. Um, So because he does talk a lot about the company favoring him. And that's that is really more or less just his character on his live stream on YouTube. He was a lot more contemplative after having some time to think. He stated that he felt and I quote a true wrestler's worth is not in his ability to win the belt, but who he becomes after he loses stating he continues to hope for the future 
And that's just really, really indicative of who Keno is and what he wanted to leave his fans with. And I just want to say here, because actually I probably should have mentioned this during our discussion about Nakajima, but Keno's comments have just reminded me. I think that's something that comes up a lot when someone has a short reign. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't have been frustrated with how this reign turned out. I was frustrated. Rachel had a right to be frustrated. And it's <laughs> not Kaito's fault. Kaito kind of got put into a tough position too through this program. But I think that sometimes we have to think about why we believe a wrestler needs to have a one year, you know, long reign when they have a belt for that reign to feel legitimate. Where does that come from? Because when you look at the history of Noah, and I would say, if you look at history of almost any company, how many reigns that are longer than three, four, five months do you, do you really see? How many of those reigns really exist? And I think that the answer would probably surprise you. I don't know where it comes from that people feel that we need to have these like gargantuan, very long reigns. Maybe it's because of people like Kobashi's very famous reign mm-hmm. in Noah. Um, there's been some incredibly long reigns within the history of all Japan, of course, as well, where people have held the belt for like a year, two years. But I think that those are actually the exception and not the norm. But because those are the ones that stand out in our mind, we think that that is what everyone needs to aspire to, to have a reign that feels like it has meaning. But I would, I think, challenge myself, I would challenge others to perhaps rethink what it might mean to really have those titles. Is it really the length that matters to you or is it what they do with it and then what they do afterwards? Yeah, I, th- I think that's really it. And you actually said this perfectly back in your Kenta and the US title. Um, and it has always stuck with me is that belts are props. and um just always stuck with me and um that losing that prop is also a character moment and that's also how you build yourself and nobody builds himself nobody keeps momentum going quite like Keno does um but at the end of this video he does apologize to his fans uh showing off that pure humanity that Nishia wrote about uh stating that he was a wrestler he knew he was a wrestler that was known for not being able to realize his manifesto, but he still hoped that his fans, his bastards, as he calls them, would continue to follow him. So uh, again, I must reiterate that Keno just does not stay down for very long, not at all. In a backstage comment on September 30th, so literally five days later, Keno outright states that his goal is to continue to torment and target Kaito Kiyomiya in revenge proclaiming he would, and I quote, drag down Kiyomiya and be the one to lead Noah into the future. At the time, I thought this was just sort of villain talk, but as it turns out, Keno did have a plan. Keno always has a plan. (laughs) (laughs) On October 7th, Keno and Nakajima both challenged Taka and Satoshi for their GHC heavyweight tag titles, which we have discussed previously. However, I would like to note that Nakajima and Keno both have different but coherent angles going into this match. I stated Nakajima was focused on the future and what Keno and Nakajima could bring to the titles as younger wrestlers. Keno was actually more focused on Kojima as an NJPW wrestler, once again bringing back their feud from over the summer. He was hung up on the idea of NJPW running Ramshot over the Noah roster, and that is still not faded even after they lost their match on October 30th. And the important thing about that October 30th show 
that ties into that is that the company announced Shinsuke Nakamura as making a appearance for the January 1st Budokan show against the great Muda in a massive match that made a ton of headlines at the time. In an October 31st YouTube live stream, Keno expressed great concern over this match, stating, and I quote, this doesn't even look like Noah anymore, which hit me very hard, actually. He went on to express that he was afraid of what relying on these outsiders would do for the company and what the company would look like if they didn't start to build a future beyond Keiji Muto's retirement. If title matches like Kaito Kiyomiya versus Kazuki Fujita, which happened the same day as that announcement, couldn't make headlines over Shinsuke and Muta. This leads us directly into November 10th, 2022, when Keno challenged for Kaito Kiyomiya's GHC heavyweight title at the January 1st Budokan. And this is a very heated promo segment, but before I get to that, I actually want to talk more about Kaito Kiyomiya and where his 2022 has landed him so we can sort of marry those two together. In contrast to the two Congo men we just talked about, uh, Kaito started off this year fairly rough with a loss to Keno for the GHC national title on January 1st in a fantastic little match. He expressed a lot of frustration after this match, not having really been able to defeat Keno reliably since their uh, later 2019 match. However, Kaito had a shot at personal redemption in the big main event of the Wrestle Kingdom crossover show on January 8th, teaming with Keiji Muto against Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kazuchika Okada. Kaito had actually called out Okada on May 24th of 2020, and Okada had not responded, so this match seemed like a dream come true for the young ace. However, he ultimately failed, eating a pin to Kazuchika Okada still several years too early to contend with the Rainmaker. We get this incredible image after the match of Kaito crying as he left the ring and Muto comforting him in his arms, which calls back to an image of Okada himself crying in Gato's arms after losing in the Tokyo Dome to Hiroshi Tanahashi, which we actually talk about in our Jumbo Saruta episode where we cover uh, Okada and Tanahashi's rivalry. I also suggest going back and watching the backstages because you get this incredible image of Kaito on all fours looking just fucking devastated <laughs> and Muto in a chair telling like <laughs> horrific stories about Antonio Inoki and he I have a picture on my fridge <laughs> it's Muto in the chair and Kaito on all fours and it's Muto having just said this is only the beginning and that really is like one of the funniest images of 2022 for me and I guess he wasn't wrong because 2022 was was certainly a journey but I'll just like I'll never forget the chaos of that (laughs) the raw chaos of that backstage with Mudo after that that that's the only thing I remembered about that fight because I watched that whole uh show in a daze because that week became awful after Kenta got hurt but I remember vividly watching that (laughs) backstage because it's just unhinged i highly recommend watching that if you haven't watched that yet 
And it, it honestly turned out to be fairly indicative because it was only the beginning. Um, and it was the only the beginning for Kaito and Muto too, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. So uh, mm -hmm. it, it did, it, it worked out. And there's a real sort of family bond with Muto shouting Kaito's name as he leaves the stage. Like, where did he go? Um, and it was, it was very, very funny. But yeah, despite this, um, these huge, huge losses, Kaito's 2022 did kind of turn around really quickly, um, at least more quickly than Shiyazaki's. And Shiyazaki's also turned around fairly quickly, as we've mentioned. But he um, had a lot of singles matches and a lot of singles victories for the next two months or so, including a win over Go Shiyazaki on January 4th and a big win over his teacher, Yoshinari Ogawa, which was a 40 minute long match. Um, that's why I didn't have you rewatch it on February 12th, <laughs> but it, it is a really good match and really significant. He, he thanks Ogawa for everything he did for I him. I remember that match. It was good. Yeah, it, it is a really good match. It's a very sweet match. And he did compete in the tag team tournament for the vacated titles on March 13th, making it to the finals, actually, with Daiki Inaba before losing to Suzuki and Sugiura. However, one of the biggest character moments and just this moment that I sort of say kickstarts where Kaito is in terms of I am Noah happened on April 27th. When Kaito stepped up at that press conference for Noah Majestic after Fujita was forced to vacate and he wanted to challenge Shiyazaki for the title. His heart was just so on his sleeve here. Like he looked like he was about to cry, begging both Shiyazaki and President Takeda to let him challenge for the title stating that he was really aware of this uneasy feeling going into Rogoku for the event and felt that it was his responsibility to represent the younger wrestlers to ensure, and I quote, a brighter future, shouting, I have feelings for the belt too, at Shiyazaki as staff restrained him. It's just a really moving scene. And I really would encourage you to seek that out. And Shiyazaki did accept his request. And Shiyazaki actually asked Takeda to make it so. Um, sort of a little bit of a princely moment on his end. However, despite all of Kaito Kiyomiya's heart and love for the belt and for the promotion, he could not stand up to go Shiyazaki and lost in the deciding match in just over 30 minutes, which we had talked about that match earlier, but you should go watch it. And I'll say about that press conference moment too between Kaito and Shio, like Rachel said, it's it's a raw moment. There's a lot of feelings there. And we talked about Shio being in this sort of weird place where he feels very cold and very detached. And he spent a lot of time feeling very detached from Kaito. But you can see like so many different emotions play on Shio's face when he's watching this very emotional and very uncharacteristic display of emotion from Kaito. It's it's a fascinating character study I think for both of them so truly something that if you haven't seen yet do do watch it it's it's sort of worth it and after this match his 2022 began to slow down to just sort of mid-card and upper mid-card tag matches and on June 17th Keiji Muto announced the first three matches of his retirement tour starting with a huge singles match against Kaito Kiyomiya on July 16th at the Nippon Budokan Leading up to this match, Kaito had at multiple points attempted to step up to Keiji Muto, only to be cut down time and time again, only coming close in a 30-minute draw against him on September 26, 2021. 
Mudo had gotten into his head and exposed this huge insecurity. There's just this huge, huge slump storyline. So this really match presented a huge opportunity for Kaito to overcome this superstar from the past, just this massive piece of Puro and wrestling at large and sort of establish himself as the hero of Noah and the future of pro wrestling and finally emerge from this cage that he had let Muto put him in. And this match in short is just incredible. It's just incredible. It's an exceptional match with just a ton of heart and story and passion. And in the end, Kaito won with Muto's very own figure four leg lock. This match ended in tears and gratitude. And in the backstages, Muto declared he would give Kaito three of his signature moves, the dragon screw leg whip, the figure four, and perhaps most importantly, the shining wizard. Do you have any thoughts on this match? Because I know you you loved it as well. I thought it was a great match. I, I really did. I think that I, like many others, perhaps thought that this wasn't going to happen. Yeah. I am glad to have been proven wrong. I really did enjoy this match. I thought it was well thought out. It's easily one of Kaito's best of the of the year, easily. I know people will say a lot of things about, you know, well, Mudo and his ability to wrestle and his knees and whatever. But this was a really great culmination of a storyline that had really dominated Kaito's time uh, since Mudo kind of showed up at Noah. So it's always good when you can see something that seemed at points tenuous kind of culminate in something that was a good thing for Kaito, something that would give him um, some momentum and the ability to move on in terms of, of giving Kaito the three signature moves. I think that's nice, but also (laughs) it gave me a bit of pause and still gives me some pause. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to talk about that because I, my opinions have changed. Actually, I've, um, I've sort of, developed new opinions thanks to a certain wrestler on this roster that nobody is going to guess who it was but (laughs) he he changed my mind very recently so Kaito does train these moves very very religiously you see all kinds of videos of him practicing them and he ended up debuting his own version of the shining wizard which is just called the transformed shining wizard same thing except he holds the wrestler's head it actually looks pretty cool and he debuts that as a finisher midway through the N1 victory tour i do want to talk just a little bit about this run um, because i was actually taken aback by the first two matches on august 11th and 13th against jack morris and masakita mia respectively Both matches sort of had this storyline where Kaito was trying his very hardest to win, but he simply couldn't get a victory no matter what he did. And I was miffed. I found that very off-putting, given that this man had just defeated Keiji Muto clean. He had this whole new ace look and hairstyle, and it just seemed off to me that, and I actually posted this on Twitter, that they should give Kaito a storyline where he is simply trying his best, but, you know, still can't win. We're going to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're going to keep that one in mind. So Kaito did try his very best and he tried very, very hard and actually succeeded. He did win the N1 victory, going on to challenge Keno for his title. Leading up to this match, 
Keno began to mock Kaito for his status as Keiji Muto's heir, going so far as to doing shining wizards of his own, even doing Muto's puress love pose. <laughs> Keno stated, and he did it great, by the way, Keno stated backstage that Kaito did not have the conviction or bravery to stand in that ring and do the pose himself, insinuating that Kaito simply did not have the ability or charisma to carry the weight that Keiji Muto's legacy carried. So here is where I want to talk about Akatoshi Saito and his evaluation of Kaito Kiyomiya that he wrote just before the N1 victory on August 8th. He did evaluations on everybody in the N1. So if you have a favorite wrestler, please, please, please go onto Noah's blog and seek that out. They're all stupendous. I recommend checking them all out, but I really, really liked Kiyomiya's for the reason that Saito specifically talks about Kaito's status as, and I quote, an orthodox ace for the promotion and as a wrestling genius who has been training since a young age. He discusses how Kaito is the summary of many people's teachings and techniques, and he compares him to the painter Picasso who learned painting at a very young age from his father and goes on to write out Picasso's extremely long full name and states that Picasso has several names, his Christian baptism names, names of saints, names of relatives. Picasso is the sum of his parts, but he puts them together to create a new identity for himself, and that is truly one of a kind. Saito wishes this upon Kaito Kiyomiya to take Muto's technique and the techniques of the generation and all the legacies that came before him and to transform them into something of his own, to absorb them, purify them, and turn them into what he is, the orthodox ace. And so on September 25th, 2022, Kaito Kiyomiya stood before a kneeling Keno and he did the Pures love pose before hitting the transformed shining wizard, transformed shining wizard and winning the GHC heavyweight title for a second time in his young career. So my opinions have changed a little bit. <laughs> I'm still <laughs> upset by this loss. I'm always going to be upset by Keno losing, but I do think that there is something to be said for the way that, that Kaito won, that he took Muto's technique and added his own spin on it and that being a piece of who he is and what his character is I can see things Saito's way he is a he is a way with words Saito is a brilliant man with an incredible mind for character these write-ups I wish he would do this more often I wish this was like a quarterly thing Saito could do a check-in on everyone's characters for us we should get him on the podcast we should get him on the podcast because he's he's utterly brilliant and I have a lot of questions about the sternness era for him. But um, <laughs> no, I think that he is right to some degree. But Kaito has always been someone in Noah who is associated with some other figure of the past, right? True. He right. idolized Misawa. And he never knew Misawa. But he idolized Misawa, who was a huge influence to him in becoming a professional wrestler. And that is someone that has been heavily associated with Kaito. Again, he never knew him, but still, that's you know a heavy influence for him. And now you have this heavy association with Muto, who is not of Noah. And what does that mean for Kaito? And I don't know. I, I think that like Saito's comments certainly give a lot for me to kind of sit with and pick through and kind of figure out, but it still all gives me a little bit of pause. Let's let's say that. 
Yeah. And I can agree with that. I mean, you, you got to listen to me for what, two weeks as I just cried and cried and cried over this. But no, I, I do really, really agree with what you're saying. And I want to see Kaito come into his own and um, sort of stand on his own. And this is going to be incredibly important as we get into this sort of final storyline in our I Am Noah. And that is going to be that he successfully defended against former NJPW star Kazuki Fujita and then against former WWE wrestler Timothy Thatcher. These two opponents are not accidents. Yeah, yeah, you know, Fujita was owed a title shot and Thatcher was technically undefeated in Noah. But no, there is a reason that we have an NJPW guy and a WWE guy. And they're so dominant against Kaito here. Like they're so, so dominant. It's it's actually really, I hated that Fujita match because it's just a mauling. And then um, the Thatcher match is like 37 minutes long of just for the most part, Thatcher dominating him in ground game. And Kaito manages to get just enough defense in, just enough offense in to land the transform Shining Wizard. The Thatcher match is especially interesting because it is also 37 minutes of Keno sitting on commentary. And he talks about how commendable it is for Kaito to be just trying his best and doing his best. And Japanese commentary is like, oh yeah, isn't that great? And to which, you know, Keno, he, he took the bait, they took the bait immediately. And he goes, no, no, you can't just try your best. You need to do more than that. You need to do better than that, which ties back into where he was in the N1. He needs to go a step beyond and become the ace. And Keno then gets up there. It's, it's actually a really funny moment where he calls out to Kaito. He's like, oi, oi. And Kaito just sort of looks at him. It's, it's really funny. Please seek it out. And then he he just goes off on Kaito. He completely breaks him down. He says, doing your rest isn't enough. We've got this Budokan show that is about to be overshadowed by a WWE guy, Shinsuke, and who also technically an NJPW guy. But, you know, he's known right now, WWE guy. And then, of course, Keiji Muto, great Muda, also known for his tenure in WWF and NJPW. So you have these huge, huge names that are not associated with Noah, not really. They don't come from Noah and they are about to overshadow Noah. And that's terrifying. That's terrifying to Keno. And he does not think Kaito can do it. Or at least he does not think that Kaito can do it alone. So he nominates himself and he throws in his hand into the ring and says that together only they can have the fight that would bring Noah out of that shadow. Only the two of them can represent Noah and represent a future for Noah, which we're going to talk about very shortly. Because in the end, it's never been about I am Noah. It's been about we are Noah. Just as Nakajima spoke on the stage of the Budokan one year prior. We will see if Keto and Kaito can tell that story again and make way for the future and who will be standing on that stage as the streamers fall. That's a beautiful point to end on because that has been the thing that we've come back to over and over again when discussing the concept of I am Noah. And the thing that I think has frustrated you and I the most because it's never about one person, even if it has become Shiozaki's slogan, right? Yep. It is oh, yeah. about 
all of them, even when people's goals are a little more self-serving than others, it truly is about all of them because none of them can become Noah without someone else standing behind them, helping them inherit what that means to become Noah. And I think that that's just beautifully illustrated there. Absolutely. So let's touch just a little bit on real Noah. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. So this was a complicated year for real Noah a year of some highs and then the lowest of lows in some cases. We're going to start with Naomichi Marafuji, the symbol of the arc. When we last left off with Marafuji in I Am Noah Part 1, he had dropped the GHC Heavyweight Championship to Katsuhiko Nakajima on October 10th, 2021 at Edion Arena, Osaka, coming off of Nakajima's N1 tournament win. He wouldn't be without a title for long, though, because on November 13th at Yokohama Budokan, Marafuji and his tag partner, Keiji Muto, as M's Alliance, of course, challenged the GHD heavyweight tag champions at the time, Masakita Mita and Kaito Kiyomiya, defeating them there to claim the titles. This would be Muto's first reign as a GHD heavyweight tag champion and Marafuji's eighth. 2022 begins very promising for the tag champions. They go into the Budokan on New Year's Day, as such, and defended their titles against their faction mates, Masaki Mochizuki and Masato Tanaka. Marafuji participated in the NOAA New Japan joint card we've talked about that was part of New Japan's Wrestle Kingdom shows in Yokohama Arena on January 8th, and he teamed with Yoshinari Ogawa to take on his senpai, Yoshinobu Kanemaru, and Zack Sabre Jr. There's also a pretty funny backstage with Marafuji as well. He's like yelling about Kanemaru and calling him his senpai. It's, it's worth watching. Marafuji and Muto had their second defense of the GHD Heavy Tag Belts on January 16th in Sendai Sun Plaza against Congo, Keno, and Manabusoya. But unfortunately, on February 8th, during an emergency press conference that Noah held, Muto and Marafuji, as we sort of alluded to before, announced they would be vacating the titles due to Muto's hip injury. And this just felt so unfair for a number of reasons, but there was just nothing that could be done with Muto needing to take this time off to heal and kind of contemplate what was next for him. Mochizuki and Marafuji did make it to the semifinals of the tournament held after the vacancy to crown new champions, but they lost to the team of Kaito Kiyomiya and Daiki Inaba on March 13th in Yokohama Budokan. What follows the tag team tournament for Marafuji are several weeks of mostly tag matches and nothing exceptionally notable. This is not a knock on Marafuji at all. He just wasn't one of the people in Noah having the most important matches and storylines this year post dropping the titles with Muto. He did, however, start to tease wanting a GHC heavyweight title shot against Kazuyuki Fujita. Tension between him and Fujita had actually started as far back as the November 28th, 2021 show during and immediately after a mixed tag they were in. On March 23rd, 2022, Mara Fuji refused to shake Fujita's hand after tagging with him and Atsushi Katoge in a winning effort against Congo in Corican Hall. So they were definitely starting to yeah. tease something. And Rachel and I were kind of thinking about what this might mean for Fujita's reign, what would be the theme here. And then Fujita drops this line after turning on Sugira during a tag, I am cyber fight. And it seemed like Fujita was sort of positioning himself as bigger than not only Noah, but bigger than cyber fight, right? So we thought perhaps they would start putting him through the the pillar, so to speak, of Noah, and then a middle gen champion, or perhaps, you know, someone like Kaito would step up and take the belt from him. But We're just never going to know where all that landed. 
like we were talking about before, Fujita needed to vacate the title due to COVID. So we're just never going to know what Noah's booking plans were or if they were indeed going to have Mara Fuji step up and challenge him. There would be more bad news during a press conference held just before this year's Cyber Fight Festival, as Rachel also alluded to. Marafuji would not be performing due to this pain that had developed in his knees. He had been pulled off of some Noah cards at the very end of May as well because of this pain. And he ended up needing to have surgery on his left knee on June 13th. So the day after Cyberfight Festival. Marafuji doesn't have any cartilage left in his knees. Yeah. And they were extremely inflamed, which was causing a lot of the pain. He took some time oh. off to, it is brutal. It's just awful. He took some time off to heal from the surgery and recover and then announced his return for Noah's anniversary show on August 5th in Corican Hall. He participated in a tag match teaming with Goshi Azaki and Takashi Sugira against Daiki Inaba, Masato Tanaka, and Satoshi Kojima. Tokyo Sports reported that Marafuji is getting weekly hyaluronic acid injections to help with the pain in his knees. But before Marafuji even made his return to Noah, House of Glory out of New York announced on July 20th that Mara Fuji would make his first appearance in the city in almost 15 years at their August 28th show, followed up by another announcement on August 3rd that Mara Fuji's opponent would be Eddie Kingston. If you know Eddie and followed his journey this year, he had three men on his wish list, Junakiyama, Namichi Mara Fuji, and Go Shiyazaki. This match would make Mara Fuji a reality. And then on what happened to be Mara Fuji's 24th anniversary in pro wrestling, he lost to Eddie in the main event of House <laughs> of Glory's high intensity card because what a Mara Fuji thing, what a Mara Fuji thing to do, <laughs> what a Mara Fuji thing, oh, but that's sure. okay because he helped a man's dream come true. Oh, absolutely. Just before going to House of Glory, Mara Fuji did have an interview where he was asked about his goals moving forward. And he said, my immediate goals, I don't have time to linger. So I want to go as far as I can, as quickly as I can. I'll be going to the U.S. at the end of the month, and I hope that as a NOAA wrestler, I can make NOAA a little bit bigger by expanding not only in Japan, but overseas. I know I'm talking a big game, but of course, I'll be aiming for the belt as well. So, of course, he has to sort of downplay his own aspirations for the GHD heavyweight belt, but this is his bit of I am NOAA for the year. He wants to expand Noah. He wants to make Noah bigger and better. And there is this drive from him to take Noah overseas. Him and Muto were actually talking about going overseas. They were very vague about this. They never really expanded on this because Muto got hurt, but they wanted to take the show on the road and go overseas and defend their belts. And they had, you know, been teasing this sort of thing. So this is definitely something that's front of mind for Mara Fuji now that they have a little bit more quote unquote access to the world with everyone kind of lightening their COVID restrictions, so to speak. They want to get in front of people from um, other countries. So this is something that is going to be very important to him. And it's why he um, returned to New York, um, certainly to participate in front of the House of Glory crowd. And of course, his I Am Noah, you know, Mara Fuji is going to be aiming, of course, to be a GHG heavyweight champion again. That is something that's going to be top of mind for him. When he came into his fourth reign, it really was Mara Fuji finally, finally finding himself. We talk about this extensively in part one, so I'm not going to rehash all of that for you now. And, you know, we'll, we'll probably talk about it again in future episodes too, but Uh, I recommend going back to part one if you want a reminder of that stuff, but he will absolutely be aiming for that fifth reign. Mara Fuji followed his brief trip to America to fight Eddie with a longer one in November. He and Nakajima performed in Queens and then went out to California where they performed on West Coast Pro and PWR's King of Indies card held on November 19th. 
They also oversaw a tryout with around 40 wrestlers hoping to come over to Noah. Marafuji and Nakajima selected two wrestlers from that tryout. Marafuji's first match back after returning from California was with his now former EMS Alliance teammates, Masaki Mochizuki and Masato Tanaka, versus Takashi Sugira, who is currently one half of the GHG Heavyweight Tag Champions with Satoshi Kojima, but also in that match was Kazuyuki Fujita and Timothy Thatcher for the Sugira Goon side. Mara Fuji pinned Sugira to secure the win for not M's Alliance, which many of us were anticipating going into this match because it seemed likely that Mara Fuji would be in a position to challenge Kojima and Sugira next. I was really excited. I thought it was going to be uh, Mara Fuji and Mochizuki in like the world's first unit undisbands match where the losing <laughs> the losing unit would have to become a unit again we're like yeah i had a really good idea there but that is not what ha- happened tell us what happened i thought your idea was brilliant and i don't think anyone could have anticipated marafuji's choice of partner as he addressed sugira in the ring post-match he teased the crowd by extending his hand to mochizuki and then to tanaka before returning to sugira and announcing his partner to challenge him and kojima would be kenta des to which sugira replied in mock shock Kobayashi-san. <laughs> so good. It was so, so good. And before Marafuji left the ring, he confirmed that Maruken would challenge for the GHC heavyweight tag titles. And the match was made for Noah's upcoming New Year's Day show at the Budokan on January 1st in 2023. Keeping in mind that Maruken have not tagged together since 2014 during Kenta's last match before he left for WWE. Now, We have lots of thoughts about that tag match, its potential outcomes, and the implications it has for Noah right now. But let's walk through the rest of Real Noah's 2022 first. That naturally leads us to Kenta, our only Real Noah figure who is not signed to Noah that will continue to cover in these episodes for as long as his path intersects with his home promotion. Kenta's 2022 started off with the highest of highs and then immediately following the lowest of lows. Kenta returned to Noah for the first time since Marafuji's 20th anniversary event, Flight, in 2018 to participate in a tag match with former No Mercy faction mate Takashi Sugira and Kazushi Sakuraba against Masakitamiya, Yoshihiki Inamura, and Daiki Inaba. His participation on the card was announced via a video package on November 28, 2021, during Noah's Noah the Best Show in Yoyogi National Stadium Gymnasium Number no. 2. Kenta's role in the match was to take on Inamura directly, and it was outstanding. They had incredible chemistry. After the match, Kenta addressed the crowd and said, what's with the big guy? If he's here, then Noah's future must be bright, right? He literally baited him into violence, then asked what was his problem. (laughs) A lot of really good baiting, too. This was meant to lead into another tag match at night three of New Japan's Wrestle Kingdom events, which was a joint card between them and Noah, of course, as you guys know by now. But the match was set to be Kenta, Takashi Sugira, and Kazushi Sakuraba taking on Taichi, Minoru Suzuki, and Takamichinoku. However, on night two of Wrestle Kingdom in the Tokyo Dome on January 5th, Kenta as the IWGP United States Champion participated in a no-DQ match against Hiroshi Tanahashi. During the match, Kenta slipped off a very tall ladder, fell to the mat, and smashed his face on a trash can on the way down. He sustained quite a few awful injuries during this match, including a broken nose, a dislocated left hip. Uh, They listed tendon damage to his finger, but this had been done in the Noah match on New Year's Day. You can actually Mm -hmm. see this happen if you go back to it. And severe lacerations to his back from the finish of the match, 
Kenta's injuries required surgery, physical therapy, and a lot of downtime to heal. As a result, he didn't wrestle again until July 5th when he made his return at a Cork and Hall New Japan show. I will just say as like a weird anecdote, he did make this like extremely random appearance at a wrestling convention in Philadelphia in March. And I say this on good authority because I went to see him. Since his return, Kenta has participated in the G1 Climax and had a strong showing there. He lost to Sonata more recently in the quarterfinal of the World Television Title Tournament. A massive storyline for Kenta throughout the course of the G1, and even a little beyond that, was the release of his autobiography, Footprints. The book was meant to be released in conjunction with his 20th anniversary in wrestling back in 2020, but the pandemic caused delays, and then his injuries in January 2022 caused additional delays. He certainly made up for it with a series of some of the most creative and unhinged backstages he has come up with to date. When Footprints was released on July 26th, the book immediately sold out via Amazon Japan for weeks. At the time of this recording, Footprints is already in its second printing. As referenced in Maruken Parts 1 and 2, you can find a Twitter thread with some translated excerpts via Chris Tarleton. What I have found really cool about the latter half of Kenta's 2022 is that he's been able to start doing some pretty significant touring with and without mm. New Japan. In November, Kenta was able to travel to Australia and New Zealand for the first time in his career to perform on a set of New Japan cards. And then on November 6th, it was announced that Kenta would make an appearance for House of Glory in New York City on December 17th. And the promotion followed up on November 19th with a confirmation that Kenta would be facing low-key 17 years to the day of their famous fight in Ring of Honor for the GHD Heavyweight Championship. Kenta will also be making an appearance for Wrestling Revolver on December 3rd in a match against Speedball Mike Bailey and on December 18th at CZW in a match against Griffin McCoy. If you remember from episode four of Kickout, where we covered Kenta and the IWGP US title, during Kenta's July 27, 2021 virtual meet and greet with New Japan, Chris Tarleton asked Kenta about when he would be able to perform in America. And Kenta said he wanted to, but he had no idea when that would be able to happen. It's really, really exciting to see him taking appearances outside of New Japan and traveling around America like he has wanted to do. That really brings us to Marafuji declaring that his tag partner take on Sugira and Kojima for the GHD heavy tag belts would be Kenta. On Instagram, Kenta said he had planned to take New Year's Day off, but would do the tag anyway. Very generous of him. He's always so benevolent. <laughs> he is very careful about how he speaks about Marafuji in public. And really, Marafuji is very careful how he speaks about Kenta as well. They tend to keep some kayfabe there to preserve the brand that is Maruken and their rivalry. But it was really nice to see Kenta posting photos from the last time they tagged together in his Instagram stories, which was, like I said before, his last match with Noah before leaving for WWE in April 2014. And that leaves us with Takashi Sugira. Sugira also had a year of, again, high highs, low lows. You know by now he was Kenta and Sakuraba's tag partner for the Budokan on New Year's Day. But earlier that same day, Sugira defended the 0-1 World Heavyweight title in Cork and Hall against Masato Tanaka. He had beaten Tanaka for the title on August 15th. With Kenta getting pulled from the NOAA New Japan card, Sugira and Sakuraba wound up teaming with Toru Yano and defeating Suzuki-kun. Sugira defended the 0-1 World Heavyweight title in Korokin against Takuya Sugawara on March 6th. With Marafuji and Muto vacating the GHG heavyweight tag titles, we needed new champions. And I mentioned before that a tournament was held to crown new winners. 
on March 13th in Yokohama Budokan, Sugira and his newly returned from America tag team mate Hideki <laughs> Suzuki <laughs> defeated Daiki Inaba and Kaito Kiyomiya in the finals to become the new champions. This was Hideki's first reign and Sugira's seventh. On April 10th, Sugira defended the 0-1 World Heavyweight title against Shinjiro Otani and Ryogoku Kogikan for their anniversary celebrations. Otani was injured during the match and taken to hospital, where he underwent surgery for a cervical cord injury. Otani has been in a rehabilitation center since August, but he is still paralyzed from the neck down. His family has made an update on November 20th that noted his respiratory dysfunction is actually improving. There are no words for how devastating this accident has been for Otani, his family and friends, Zero One, and all those affected by what happened on April 10th. In our show notes and on the blog, we will link to Otani's family's website so that you can make a donation or buy a t-shirt that will go towards his care. On April 30th, Sugira and Hideki defended the GHD heavyweight tag titles against Nakajima and Keno of Congo, of course, in Ryogoku Kogikan. But on May 4th in Korokin, they dropped the titles to the Sugira Goon team of El Ijo del Dr. Wagner Jr. and Rene Dupre. On June 4th, in Oda City General Gymnasium, an aid show was held by Zero One for Otani-san. Masato Tanaka defeated Sugira for the Zero One World Heavyweight title in the main event, and there was a beautiful and really heart-wrenching and also heartwarming couple of moments between the two of them after the pin. Sugira participated in the 2022 N1 tournament in B-Block and finished with eight points, failing to make it to the finals. In an August 10th report on comments made at the N1 press conference, Sugira suggested the 2022 N1 would be his last if he failed to win the tournament, but we'll see. Old men say a lot of things, but I'll read you the, uh, I'll read you the full quote. He mentioned the fact that he had not won a tournament in eight years, including the previous global leagues. That also means N1 and said, quote, if I fail to take the tournament this year, I will not participate in this league next year. I will fight with that in mind. I feel as though my presence in Noah has been dwindling recently, he said. I really want to win here and prove that Noah is Sugira. So directly invoking I am Noah here. He's feeling like like Noah is slipping away from Sugira. And he really wants to feel like Noah and Sugira are synonymous again. Which I think is funny because I think that everything is always about him. But that's just my personal take on things. I mean, how many times have we said Sugira's name before in this podcast before we even got to his section? He's everywhere and he's mm-hmm. he's important to everyone's story. So I think that still holds. Sugira joined forces with Satoshi Kojima to challenge the GHD heavyweight tag champions, another Sugira Goon team of Timothy Thatcher and Hideki Suzuki. Honestly, this program was outstanding from start to finish because Hideki <laughs> Suzuki is a madman. But the new team of Taka and Satoshi became GHD heavyweight tag champions on September 25th in Dolphins Arena in Nagoya. This is Kojima's first GHD heavyweight tag reign and Sugira's eighth, making him and Marafuji tied for overall GHD heavyweight tag reigns. Kind of funny because they're also tied for overall GHD heavyweight reigns as well. So there you go. So far, Taka and Satoshi have had defenses against Nakajima and Keno of Congo and Muhammad Yone and Akatoshi Saito of Funky Express. So all that being said, we've gone through our real Noah players. 2022 was an exceptionally difficult year Mm -hmm. for real Noah, filled with injuries, heartaches, and personal setbacks. Marafuji and Sugira did not play a role in the GHG Heavyweight Championship scene at all in 2022, and Kenta spent half the year being unable to wrestle. But Marafuji and Kenta were able to achieve personal goals in traveling or preparing to travel for shows 
in America and overseas. And Sugira has remained a dependable fixture in the heavyweight tag scene. And I would say in Noah at large, regardless of whatever he said at the N1 press conference, because I don't really agree with him. <laughs> Kojima aside, <laughs> it is significant. <laughs> That's controversial, but Kojima aside, it is significant that it is Sugira facing Maruken for the GHC heavyweight titles at the Budokan on January 1st, 2023. To remind you of some things, Sugira and Kanamaru ended the Maruken tag mm. era when they took the GHC junior heavyweight titles from them on June 5th, 2005. Mm. The significance of this title fight happening at heavyweight cannot be overlooked either. Maruken have only challenged at heavyweight once against Misawa and Ogawa in 2004. We have just finished our Maruken episodes for the rival series, and while their rivalry is wholly significant, Sugira has been a rival to both of them in turn. Sugira is still one of Marafuji's most notable and prolific rivals. Both of them have their own journeys with him, and Sugira has always represented a hurdle that they have to clear on their own path through Noah. He has been instrumental to their careers, and they to his. This match is absolutely seeped with Noah's history between Marafuji, Sugira, and Kenta. And a good question coming off the booking of this match is what role does Noah's history have in the promotion today and certainly on this card for the Budokan? And let's tie it all together with some notes that actually Keno had on that match. <laughs> or um, in, the, in his YouTube, he states, and I had you know stated the importance of this Nakamura and Great Muta match as sort of an opponent towards him and Kaito fighting for the spotlight on this Noah Budokan card. So when you're asking what role this history has on this card, Keno says it's another opponent. It's it's something else to fight. He represents the future. Kaito represents the future. Again, they're both champions who never knew Misawa. They're both, you know, these pieces of Noah that represent a new era. So now they're fighting against real Noah effectively for this attention and for this importance and for this weight of this Budokan show. So there is a lot of storyline happening here. And the fact that Kano has now put this on his YouTube and turned this into a storyline, I'm not going to say it's definitely going to be an angle, but I'm saying that using Keno's power of words, those power of words he's used throughout the whole year to sort of drive these storylines forward and create storylines for himself. This could become something. And this could become something for Nakajima, who has been pushing this anti-NJPW with where Kenta is now, and this anti, you know, age and anti-history sort of story where he also represents the future. So you have a lot of our, I guess, I am Noah, sort of the mid-gen and the younger generation that are beginning to sort of sag into this role of fighting real Noah. We're not quite there yet, but we could be, maybe, possibly. But uh, we we definitely need to keep an eye out and see what the future holds. Extremely well said. It would be really nice to move this company back into a into some generational warfare, let's say. Yeah. I think for once it might actually, we have a lot of uh, differing opinions throughout this podcast from different people on generational war. But I think we are at a point where that might be what the doctor ordered and uh, I know there are several wrestlers who might agree but we'll see what actually happens
thank you all so much as always for listening to and supporting Kickout. We're so grateful for you and for everything that you guys have done for us. And um, if you would like to support our work with a gift, please go to ko-fi.com. That's ko-fi.com slash kickout299. And thank you all so much once again to everyone who has supported us that way so far. We really do appreciate it. As always, please don't forget to subscribe to us and give us a five-star review or rating on your preferred podcast platform if you enjoy what you've been hearing. More people can find us when you leave a five-star rating, which helps us out immensely. And you can find us on Twitter at Kickout299. You can find me, Rachel, at Milky Star. That's M-I-I-K-Y Star. And you can find Alicia at Shiranui Kai with two eyes. We also now have a link tree where you can find us in different ways, different ways to keep touch with us. And that will be on linktr.ee slash kickout299. We always have our blog where you can find different information about the podcast, about articles that Rachel has written, that our different contributors have written. So go to kickout299.wordpress.com for you to submit questions to us, or if you have any feedback, or if you have an interest in submitting a pitch for the blog, go ahead and send us an email at kickoutat299 at gmail.com. We do have some future episodes coming at you. We've got our December 10th episode of Talking Triple Crown, where we will be covering Real World Tag League and Junior Battle of Glory. We have our December 21st episode, and that is going to be our year-end episode. And we have joining us Jesse of Royal Road and, of course, of Talking Triple Crown, Smiley, and Dr. Jonathan Foy. We're really, really excited uh, to go through the year and talk about our favorites. So that's going to be really fun. And then speaking of that, we also have our December 28th episode of Talking Triple Crown. And that will be our 12th episode and our end of year episode. And guesting us there is going to be Captain Lou. Thank you all so much, and we'll talk to you soon.